Yeah, but how do we get ready for the last quarter of the fantasy season? I'll ask Ray Murphy, co-general manager of BaseballHQ.com, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 10th. It's show number 30 of the 2018 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature interview with Ray Murphy, the co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com, discussing roster management down the stretch, first pitch Arizona, his boons and banes, and more. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols looking at closer changes in Washington, New York, and Miami, plus more. And from the American League, Jock Thompson looks at injury news in Houston affecting George Springer and Lance McCullers. And there's more from Jock as well. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our frequent flyer comment, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Toronto third baseman Vladimir Guerrero Jr. And in our pitcher matchup segment, Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick has a marquee matchup featuring Arizona right-hander Zach Godley in Cincinnati to take on right-hander Luis Castillo, as well as other weekend matchups. Later in the show, I'll have our weekly talk with Todd, asking Todd Zola about how he's prepping for the stretch run. And finally, in Master Notes, I'll be talking about working the decimals, even at this late date. It's another Big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We're coming up to the quarter pole. we got to talk some baseball. Actually, you might have thought that we're coming to the three-quarter pole in the fantasy season, and I guess we're three-quarters of the way through. But the quarter pole is a term from horse racing, and a racetrack names those distance poles by how far they are from the wire. That's what degenerate horse players like me learn to call the end of the race, not from the post. That's the start. Even at that, the quarter pole is a misnomer, because the quarter pole at a racetrack doesn't mean the race has a quarter of its distance left, it means there's a quarter of a mile left. So really, if we want to use racetrack jargon, we're approaching the 40 pole in the fantasy baseball season. Down the stretch we come. And in the first inning of this Friday full edition, part one of our feature expert interview with Ray Murphy, co-general manager of BaseballHQ.com. Ray, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Thanks for inviting me on again. Oh, it's always a pleasure to have you. It's a ton of fun to talk with you. Uh, let's start with your teams uh, in your experts leagues and NFPC and so on. How are you doing in uh, this year's fantasy baseball season? You know, it's funny. I think last time we talked, I was saying how things were going well, but I was, and, and my frame of mind a month or two ago was really just to sort of get teams in position to have interesting stretch runs. And now that we're getting to the stretch run section here, I think I can officially say there are a few interesting things going on. So, uh, I am uh, not checking out on the season here in mid-August. I have, I have a lot to play for, so uh, it's uh, going to be an interesting final six weeks or so. It's a bit after the fact at this point, Ray, but what was your reaction to the trade deadline uh, goings-on? You know, it was... I, I think we talked on the mid-season roundtable with Todd, and we kind of previewed it a little bit, and I was not overly 
excited about what was yet to still come. I think Machado had already been dealt, and it looked like there were going to be a bunch of you know traditional relievers for prospect steals left on the horizon, and that ended up being kind of how it played out. And you know the, the Archer deal with Pittsburgh and Tampa was probably the most interesting transaction that happened. But I don't know if there's a little bit of groupthink in all the front offices now, or if the you know with all the uh, GMs having a similar pedigree and mindset, or if it's just become a a more rational marketplace, but. You know, I'm having a hard time looking back at the trade deadline log and saying about any particular team, what the heck were they thinking, you know, which is sort of half the fun of the trade deadline. It is, uh, but it's also kind of reassuring to look at all these teams and realize they're getting better at this, which means that uh, maybe it makes them a little more predictable in future that they're not going to go out and do dumb stuff or sit on their hands for the entire time. I think it also helps the league context is so um, variable from year to year, and this year, especially in the National League, we had so many teams that consider themselves to be in contention that uh, there was a lot of action in that regard. I can tell you that as an American League-only player, it was kind of disappointing that nobody came over of any note and the one guy who did Tommy Pham uh, I think fouled a ball off his foot in his second at bat and broke his foot and he's pretty much done so it wasn't a, a great year for crossovers and I had the fab hammer and all I got out of it was jo- Jonathan VR yeah that's uh it was definitely less than exciting for the uh the AL only players for sure Pham mustered a you know sort of moderate bit of excitement depending on exactly when your deadline was if you managed to bid on him before he got hurt but uh you know, as you say, blowing your fab budget for two at bats of Tommy Pham is not exactly what you were holding on to your uh, on to all that fab for for four months just to be able to do that. I was really pleased with myself, Ray, in that league that uh, by some judicious use of zero bids, we allow zero bids in tout and uh, and one dollar bids. I managed to line myself up at at one point right at the trade deadline. I had five closers. I had Ken Giles, who had been traded over to Toronto, and I thought he would get the role there. I had Jace Fry for Chicago. He got the job when Joaquin Soria moved. I had Jake Diekman in, in Texas, uh, who had the job for about 14 seconds after Kayla got dealt. I had uh, um, Rodney in Minnesota, who was an established closer all by himself, and, and Michael Givens. And uh, as I woke up this morning, I found out I may have none. Yeah, I was going to say, you went from, it started with the good, you started that little paragraph with the, the good news was I had Ken Giles as a closer, and I was sitting here thinking, there's no good news about that, Patrick, and then it just got worse from there. Yeah, that's right. I was thinking the same thing. If if you're starting off saying, all right, I got Ken Giles, you know, you're, you're probably not in as great a shape as you think you are. And of course, his first outing or second outing in Toronto in a save opportunity against Boston, he was just terrible. Uh, he, he gave up five runs, I think, in, uh, in got two outs or maybe only one. It was brutal. And the thing is, Ray, I don't know if you watched the game, but he was within about four inches of getting out of that inning with the save. Uh, Mookie Betts hit one into the gap in uh, left center, and Pilar, who can usually run these things down, got it, dove for it and got a glove on it, but just ticked it into the corner and uh, into the into the out to the wall in the gap, and uh, the uh, route was on, as they say. Uh, are you anticipating any post-waivers trades? We've already seen Fernando Rodney get shipped to Oakland. Anything else you think might happen? Yeah, I, I would think there's some some dominoes still to fall. The Rodney example is a good one of the kind of profile of player you usually see. You know, the uh, guy in the expiring contract who, you know, maybe makes enough or isn't enough of a difference maker that he, the waiver coin doesn't get blocked. But, um, you know, Rodney has been mentioned. And, you know, some of those 10 National League teams that you talked about who are still in the race might 
uh, you know, as that sorts themselves out, that might unblock them or have some of them change direction. I know there's been some talk about uh, some of the veteran pieces on the Giants if they, as they continue to drift toward the back of that 10-team pack that, you know, Andrew McCutcheon could get flipped or something like that. So, you know, there are, you know, right up till September 1st, I'm sure there will be, uh, you know, some moves of consequence. And boy, the staying on the closer theme for a second, I think the last uh, week or 10 days has been the most volatile for closers of the entire season. You rattled off you know, you've already named seven or eight closer jobs that have changed in, since August 1st, and it's uh, it's been wild. I was, in fact, watching, back to Giles, I was, in fact, watching that game the other night, and it was funny because I've been something of a Giles apologist in the whole saga with Houston all year, even dating back to last year. You know, it was sort of a chicken or egg thing where is Giles that bad or had Houston gotten a little you know, trigger happy with the uh, the quick hook where like he'd give up two singles in a row and they'd take they'd come and get him and not let him work out of anything. And I had sort of been an apologist for Giles and thought that the Astros were kind of just ruining his confidence by you know yanking him so quickly every time he you know put, quite literally put a couple of runners on base. And you know, so she got he got free of that and got to Toronto. And I thought maybe that he'd get a fresh start. And yeah, you described what happened in his first save op. So maybe I was a little uh, making a few too many excuses for Giles, and he has some legit stuff to work out on his own. But he still, in my mind, he still owns some skills, and I'll probably be interested in him as a uh, second or third tier closer entering 2019, assuming that's what that, that's where he still is. Yeah, it looks like a, a situation with Ken Giles that he just seems to have lost all his confidence, and partly I think that might be because of the way he is. Uh, he certainly was not a favorite in Philadelphia. They traded him to Houston, uh, where he quickly ran afoul of the manager there, and I think that uh, maybe we overstate how important it is that the players and managers get along, but at the same time, uh, if, if it turns into a pattern and maybe two incidents is not a pattern but uh, you have two successive pretty decent organizations who said this guy's got a lot of skill but we just can't deal with him for whatever reason uh, I think as fantasy players it behooves us to be mindful of those sorts of things I mean a baseball locker room is a locker room and it's a playground and all that stuff we hear but it's also a workplace and we've all had workplace issues with guys who are just like not there mentally or, or, or emotionally when you're trying to get the job done regardless of what it is you do. We probably shouldn't talk about the baseball HQHR department, Patrick. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just kidding, of course. Um, yeah, that's all very true. And, you know, I, there's one other possibly relevant aspect. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of layers to the onion with, uh, with, with Giles. Yeah, they all make me cry. <laughs> one other thing that kind of stuck in my head with him was uh, after – you know, st- sticking with my Boston bias here, after the Red Sox beat Earldis Chapman uh, in the uh, series finale against uh, the Yankees l- last weekend, uh, one of the Red Sox had a comment about getting the Chapman, and they said something to the effect of, yeah, you know, a few years ago when he threw 101 and nobody else threw more than 97, you know, he was kind of intimidating. But now, you know, everyone throws 100. So, you know, you can see a lot more of it. And Chapman doesn't, you know, isn't that distinguishable from the rest of the, uh, you know, the high-end relievers. So you have a better approach to how to deal with those guys. I wonder I wonder if some of that goes on with Giles, too. Not that he was a, quite a 101, 103 guy like uh, Chapman was. But, you know, his stuff may not be as unique as it was, as you said, going back to like his Philadelphia days when he just kind of shredded people and, you know, he's dealing, maybe, maybe he's a little more hittable and that's just feeding the, uh, you know, sort of self-doubt adversity snowball that's going on there. And he's like, you know, he's a little bewildered because he's never been hit this hard before and he's not handling it well. 
I think that's an issue uh, as well. I mean, we know that baseball, they say, is a game of failure, but usually we're talking about the hitters, where you're lucky if you get uh, you know one hit in three at-bats. But pitchers, it's not a game of failure for them. Most often, it's a game of success. I mean, most pitchers do pretty well. Even the bad ones uh, strike out more guys than they walk, and they, and they don't give up that many runs. And generally speaking, inning by inning, they do pretty well. And then all of a sudden, especially if you're a dominant guy like Giles had been, where you, as you said, you f- he finds himself struggling a little bit, and all of a sudden, uh, whatever frail twig of confidence this whole edifice is resting on snaps, and the next thing you know, this guy's uh, floundering around. Yeah, that's exactly right. And then you know, especially with these big power arms, you know, anytime they've been in trouble in their pe- in, in, the, in their past, you know, the rare occasions it's happened, what do they do? They just reach back and throw harder or try to. And that's when the command breaks down and you start, you know, throwing straight fastballs down the middle of the plate. And even if they're 98, 99, those are going to get clobbered. So, uh, you know, maybe it's one of those cases where um, an offseason's worth of perspective and, you know, a fresh start and a fresh stat line next year helps. Although, you know, this is now... Considering this started in the postseason last year with Giles, we are sort of already into a full calendar year. As you can tell, I'm kind of fascinated by the whole case. I am too, and I know we're spending a lot of time talking about Ken Giles, but I think it's an interesting case to look at, especially for when we're thinking about next year, as guys in last place like me are always thinking about next year. And I look at Giles, and and the first thing that jumps out is his dominance rate has fallen from 14 strikeouts per nine in 2016 down to 9.7 strikeouts per nine this year, and you think to yourself, whoa, that's not good. But his walk rate has fallen from 3.4 walks per nine to one. And his command ratio is up around 9.3, which is one of the highest ones you're ever going to see of any pitcher, I believe. And I wonder if he's kind of struggling to reinvent himself in some way that uh, may pay off with some dividends in the future uh, as soon as next year. And maybe for whatever reason, Houston was getting tired of him making the transition and Toronto can afford to be a little more patient. Well, I think I think there's certainly an element of that in that, you know, Houston may not, you know, their intentions may not have been bad. They may not have just been tired of waiting for him to make the transition, but, you know, they're trying to win a World Series this year. They just couldn't wait any longer. They need to right. get somebody who could get them out in September and October. And for that purpose, you know, putting aside all the off-field issues, I'd much rather have it sooner than Giles. To your point, the Jays can take the longer view and bet on Giles, you know, regaining some semblance of his established skill level and who knows it's also one of those things where uh you know a new video uh you know some new video analysis a new pitching coach a new grip on a slide or any one of those kinds of things that a new organization a new uh philosophy might you know they might they might have a whole checklist of things they can go through with giles and something will click well, the last comment I'll make about Giles is uh, in his uh, 14.0 Dom year in 2016, his first pitch strike rate was 64. This year, 64. His velocity was 97.2. His velocity this year, 97.3. So it's not like he's not throwing as well. In fact, you may argue he's throwing better than ever. So it could be a coaching thing. It, it could be a movement thing. Maybe he's tipping pitches. You're right. It could be any one of those kind of things. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Ray Murphy, co-general manager of BaseballHQ.com, a columnist at the site. And Ray, our theme for this uh, Friday Full Edition is how to play fantasy baseball down the stretch. And uh, to start, how are you preparing for the last quarter of the fantasy season with your teams? You know, it's, it's, it's a mindset change that, you know, I think sort of happens gradually over the year. But, you know, it's, it, we're at the point now where, you know, it's really kind of crystallized, at least in my mind, and I think it should be in 
other people's minds that, you know, we think of it as a long season and it's a marathon and, you know, a lot of times in, at our draft or auction or with our early season pickups or roster management, we're, we're playing a long game and, you know, we're trying to layer, you know, layer our roster or set things up to carry us through six months, six full months and, you know, keep the roster producing all year. Those days are over. We're into sprint mode now. And I think that, you know, every that that needs to per, sort of pervade everything you do with your roster. It's not a time for pet projects or sitting on the third guy in an unsettled bullpen who might who, who might back into some saves. Then you know that might still happen, but the impact is you know a couple of weeks worth of saves. It's not worth the payoff anymore. So you know playing time and roles become king. And, you know, the, the, in some ways, the best way you can move the needle in any counting stat on the pitching side or on the hitting side right now is to get more at-bats and innings in your competition. So that, you know, I, trying, to, trying to read the tea leaves of what teams are doing post-trade deadline with roles is critically important. Uh, I know our staff at Baseball HQ spends a ton of time trying to figure that out and document that for everybody. And I think, you know, it's time to... You know, put aside all your pet projects, you know, stop playing the long game and really just, you know, re- really micromanage the roster week over week and or day over day if your league allows it right through September 30th. That's funny you should mention that, Ray. I was thinking that at BaseballHQ.com, our mantra is always buy skills, not roles. To what extent does that change when we are down to these last 40 games and roles become more important? I, I think it changes quite a bit. Uh, you know, one example that... I can point to just from the past week is uh, this guy, Jeff McNeil, who's sort of taken over the um, second base job with the Mets uh, after as Drupal Cabrera left for Philly. And I, in the haze of the trade deadline, I was a couple of days lagging in posting a projection to the website for McNeil and a couple of guys in our subscriber forums, you know, posted a question about it or, you know, politely called me on that and said, Hey, can we get a projection for McNeil? Somebody actually said, Hey, look, I've got a, my waiver wire, my fab is tonight. Uh, I'm in an NL only league and I need to, I need to know if McNeil is better than a replacement level. And even without putting up the projection, I just looked at the playing time component and I saw that our Phil Hertz, who handles the Mets playing time, had allocated McNeil for 70% of the Mets second base at bats for the rest of the season. And I posted back in that forum thread. I said, "Look, I'll get the, I'll get you a projection tonight." But I can tell you right now, with seventy percent playing time, that's kind of all you need to know. That's better than above the waterline in a ten or twelve team NL only, if unless he's a one ninety hitter and he's not a one ninety hitter. So that's a guy you want. And sure enough, even though McNeil's projection ended up being pretty flimsy, it was one hundred and fifty at bats of, you know, a couple of you know maybe a dozen runs scored in RBIs, two homers, and two stolen bases. That was a five or six dollar projection in an NL only league, and to, and I ended up grabbing McNeil even in a couple of mixed leagues just because of the same sort of mental calculus. It's not that the projection is you know cast in stone or anything. It's just that I wanted bats from guys who have you know some baseline level of skill, and McNeil meets that criteria, so I jumped on him. Anybody else uh, that pops to mind when you think about? Um playing time changes that might benefit a, a guy who's under the radar a little bit? You know, it's so, and the other aspect of the, you know, the late season sprint that we haven't talked about yet, and, you know, it's obviously something you've talked about both in Master Notes and here on the show, 
uh, you know, at this time every season, you know, the, the category management becomes critically important in the, you know, in the roto categories at this time of year. And so the, the pickups also end up being sort of category targeted. And you can sit here and rattle off guys who look like they can help in <coughs> one or a couple of categories. You know, Fran Mill Reyes is having a, you know, ridiculous 15 at bats since he got called up again, but he, that might be enough to get him more playing time in San Diego. He actually hit pretty well his first time up, too. He was just in a crowded outfield, and he got sent down. He's been killing the ball at AAA all year, and he's basically killed the ball whenever the Padres have decided to put him in the lineup. So maybe that happens a little bit more in in September. Uh, if you're looking more speed-based, you know, Phil Irvin's having a nice couple of weeks in Cincinnati since he's taken over for the injured Jesse Winker, and he can run a little bit. There are, you know, if you comb your waiver wire and you're willing to sort of relax those standards we had earlier in the year about small sample sizes, and that sort of thing, there are, there, are, there are flyers to be taken on just about any need you might have. What do you do when you're considering Major League rosters as September approaches, and then all of a sudden we see this huge influx of prospects and, uh, and guys that they just want to bring up and have a look at, as far as calculating playing time for Baseball HQ, the site, and as far as calculating or assessing playing time for your own purposes on your own teams, how concerned are you, especially with the also-ran teams, that uh, it's it's more difficult to figure out who's going to be playing when and how much on teams that are out of the running and might want to take a take a look at their uh, AAA guys? You know, it's a good question, and you know, even just as you're asking it, I'm kind of reflecting on the sort of the league dynamic that you were talking about. Um, earlier with uh, you know, the cluster of 10 teams in the NL that still have a, you know, at least a theoretical shot, whereas meanwhile the AL postseason field is pretty much all set and some of the, um, some of the slotting might be the only thing that's up for negotiation. The reason that seems like it's important is because you know, in observing September playing time for a number of years, it does seem like there's sort of an unwritten ethos among managers that they will do more of their sort of internal scouting or give the kids a chance when they're not playing teams that are still in the playoff hunt. And if they're still playing, if they're, if their opponent is still in the playoff hunt, they'll, you know, play things a little more straight up. But if it's, uh, you know, Padres Reds game in September, you're liable to see all kinds of crazy things. Um, so, you know, that matters in the distribution that you were talking about this year, because in the NL, where virtually everybody's still mixing it up, you might see things stay a little truer to form into the third or fourth week of September on, on in most games, because there's going to be a theoretical contender in almost every game. But meanwhile, on the AL side, maybe things get a little, uh, a little fast and loose with the rookies a little earlier in September, because there will be so many, you know, Tigers, Orioles games or what have you that, um, you know, that, that will provide opportunities for those guys. That'll, that'll be something to watch, you know, even fairly early on in September to see sort of what the, uh, what the adoption rate is of letting those guys go. I also wonder when I'm looking at the tea leaves, uh, how much uh, a team that's out of the running and has been for a while, and I live near Toronto, so I'll, t- I'll talk about them. Almost the only thing that the fan base has to look forward to is when is Vladimir Guerrero Jr. going to be called up? And I, I presume because of the playing time rules and service time rules and so forth that they'll probably wait now till September. It's only another couple of weeks. Uh, so as to, I don't think that the September time counts on your on uh, on a prospect's uh, service clock. So it's in the it's in the Toronto's uh, interest to not promote him right now with uh, so little time left till September. 
But when he gets called up, he figures to play. Unlike somebody who, as you say, with maybe with Oakland or the Yankees or Boston, these teams have to keep going because they're fighting for their spots or they're fighting to improve their slot and try to avoid that playing game in the case of the Yankees. So there's, uh, there's a lot of dynamics going on in that regard. But in the American League, most of them, as you say, are going to be feel free to do whatever it is they like for competitive reasons, for assessment reasons, and for fan-pleasing reasons. In the National League, it's quite a different story. I, I was looking today. The wild card race has Milwaukee, Atlanta, Arizona, and the Dodgers all pretty much even. Yeah, that is a, that is quite a frenzy. And you know, Guerrero is certainly the highlighter. The um, the highlight, the headliner. I should, highlighter is like a merge of those two words. That's a funny one. Um, the headliner of the people we'd like to see in September. I don't think you've got it quite right on the service time. I know the September playing t- the September call up time does not count toward Rookie of the Year eligibility, but in terms of free agency, I'm pretty sure it does count. Um, but that you know, I still think he comes up in September unless. The Jays are thinking about playing games with, you know, all the way into the uh, Super 2 arbitration deadline and keeping him down till like next June, which seems unlikely to me. I would I would still think we're going to see him in September. And to your point, the minute you call him up, you should be playing him every day. You're not calling him up to sit. And that goes for him. That goes for Bichette. That goes for any of the guys that Padres want to call up, whether it's Luis Urias or anybody, or Tatis or any of those guys. You know, there's... Yeah, there, there should be some guys getting, you know, that what, what there's still a school of thought that people think that like just getting their feet wet in the majors in September kind of level sets them for the, uh, you know, to hit the ground running the following April. So for those guys who get called up, you would think they're going to get a couple of weeks of at-bats. You mentioned the importance of category management, something Todd and I talk about a lot. Uh, when we're trying to figure out how realistic our expectations are for the category and I'll be talking more about this with Todd when talk with Todd comes up a little later on in the show sometimes I think in my experience playing that that guys look at where they are rather than where they're going to be and uh, for instance I had a trade offer in in my league not long ago a guy with a lot of home runs offered me a home run hitter for Malik Smith I'm 35 home runs behind the next guy like I need 35 home runs in the next five weeks to, to pick up one point. But I'm in the middle of a bunch of stolen bases, and I figure I can pick up four or five points in that category. And I wondered, you know, in some way, did this guy just look at where we are and think, well, he couldn't even have done that with my 35 home run gap. But even looking down the road, if I was only 10 behind now and probably projecting to be 15 behind by the end, it's very unlikely that somebody's going to get me 15 home runs between now and the end. Why would I make that deal? And why aren't people looking at where we're going to be rather than where we are at the moment? Yeah, it's a really good question, especially, you know, it's pretty, in some sense, the math and those counting stats should be more straightforward. You know, there's always a little more um, fudge factor when you're talking about the ratios because you can make up ground in two ways. You can gain ground yourself and, you know, the guy in front of you can come back to you, but, you know, nobody's going to lose stolen bases. So you've got to, if you're going to close that gap, you got to do it yourself. And like you said, you're not going to find somebody to find your to, to to close your 35 home run gap. I'm sitting here trying to figure out with my NFBC team, which is comfortably in first place, and I'm kind of trying to you know shift my attention to playing for the overall standings. I'm, I was sitting sitting here looking at my team the other day, saying, you know, I could really use a guy who could steal 20 bases in the last six weeks of the season. Guess what? I looked around, and you're not going to find one of those. <laughs> 
those don't exist. So <laughs> that's uh, you know, the unfortunate reality in some in some circumstances. There are gaps that because that's kind of the point I was going to make. You know, it sounds a little bit like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth, but you know, the overall point is, uh, except for those extreme examples, like needing 35 home runs in the last six weeks, I think people frequently underestimate the amount of ground they can make up, especially with the um, the ratio categories, because like I was saying earlier, you know, the, the gap can move in both directions. When I'm evaluating a gap in the ratio categories or even in the overall standings, I often look at it and say, can I get halfway to where I need to be? And if I can, you know, if I can close a 20 point gap in the overall standings, or if I can close a quarter of a run gap in ERA by getting halfway there, then to me, that's probably worth the investment or worth the effort to get there just on the chance that my opponent meets me halfway. So that that's often how I approach these calculations. I might look at a 25 point standing deficit and say, I'm not picking up 25 points, but if I look at it and say, can I pick up 12 and a half and then, you know, maybe I'll get some help from other people. Maybe this guy just lost a couple of closers or whatever else in the, uh, the playing time games, or he's got a few guys on the DL or he's cooling off anyway. You know, if I can, if I can reasonably tell myself I can get halfway to the mark, then I, to me, that's still within the realm of possibility. Or maybe somebody in front of you, especially if you're in the second half of your standings and just trying to pick up some points for pride purposes, uh, oftentimes you're going to be in leagues where the guy in front of you just stopped playing and he's carrying a lot of dead wood on his roster, not bothering to stream his pitchers, those kinds of things that you have to also keep in mind. Uh, Ray, let's wrap this up with uh, with this question. What do you think is the one thing that uh, too many fantasy players don't do when they're uh, when they're looking at their stretch run uh, rosters and and tactics. You know, I, I think to my last point, I think one thing they don't do is they don't sell them is, is they don't give themselves enough credit. I think they sell sell their possibilities short. Um, and, you know, take a look at all of the playing time and your know, role changes that we were just talking about in the last 10 minutes from the, you know, eight closer jobs that have changed in the last week to the rookies who are coming up to the uh, rash of injuries that comes, you know, every single day in the news, the playing time landscape has, ch- you know, changes really quickly at this time of year. And if you overlay that with, you know, for, better or for worse, the fact that a certain segment of the people in your league start paying attention a little bit less if they're out of the money and football starting up and that sort of thing. I think there's a more than at any other time of year, you can make up ground with effort. You can outwork people if you've got the fab or if your league rules allow fairly liberal roster churning at this time of year, you can churn your hearts to content. And I think the effects of that are more than just about anybody gives you gives the uh, give, gives credence to doesn't mean you're going to make up a 30 40 point deficit in the overall standings every time but you know I think there's a you know one in 10 chance you make a big run and a you know four in 10 chance you make a moderate run and you know if you my, my philosophy is always if you've, you if you've worked so hard to get to mid-august no matter where you stand then you know it's it's always worth running through the finish line just to see where you know the full six months of effort get you rather than just running for four and a half months and then pulling up that's well said ray and something else i'd like to uh, throw in there set yourself a goal 
no matter what uh, position you're in in the standings, see what you can do towards the end of the year to improve in some way. If you're so far out of it you can't move, then say to yourself, I can't move in the overall, but I am going to pick up three points in ERA. Or I can't move in the overall, but I'm going to definitely do something to, to gain in stolen bases, a place where I can move. And uh, in my case, I've told this story a million times here on Baseball HQ Radio. I'm in last place in Tout American League. I had a terrible draft. Uh, I've had a terrible season all the way around, and I'm in last spot. And a month or so ago, I was under 40 points, and I was 8 or 9 points out of 11th. I'm now at 43 and a half, and I'm 3 points out of 11th, and I'm actually only 6 points out of 10th. And so I've set my goal. I'm going to try to not finish last. And it's a pride thing partly, but it's also an incentive to just keep doing something to stay active in the league and maybe uh, prove to myself I can do it. And I've said this before too. I think if you do that when it doesn't matter, you learn a lot of really valuable lessons for when it does. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You Even if you don't get the benefits in the standings, the you know the, the exercise always has benefits. And... You know, sometimes that sort of deferred payoff isn't enough to hold hold people's attention, but that's the, I certainly agree with you. That's not the camp I fall in. All right, Ray, this has been super interesting so far. I'll let you take a breather, and we'll get you back in the second half. All right, I'm going to go hydrate. Ray Murphy is co-general manager of BaseballHQ.com and a columnist at the site. He'll be back a little later in the show. Coming up, our Market Watch reports on player news from the National League and the American League. That's next on Baseball HQ Radio. And the pitch. Swung on in a high drive center field. Jones is going back. He turns. He looks. And that ball is history. Josh Hamilton has hit his fourth home run of the ball game. All of them two-run shots. Eight RBIs for Hamilton. And four home runs. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch Player News Reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League Report. And leading off, it's the National League. And our old friend, Baseball HQ analyst, Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Good to be here. Lots of news this week. Lots of news and a lot of it affecting closers, which is interesting at this time of the year, given the importance of the saves category in a lot of uh, league races in fantasy baseball. So we'll start in Washington. Uh, Closer Sean Doolittle went on the DL a while ago with a foot injury, and uh, they breathed a sigh of relief because they had recently acquired Kelvin Herrera to do uh, backup duty and an established guy in his own right. Now he's on the DL. He's got some tightness in the throwing shoulder, they're calling it. Phil Hertz covers the Nationals for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. What happens now in the Washington bullpen? We've got Doolittle and Herrera out. Yeah, Herrera is, is being called a, it's being called a rotator cuff impringement and no word on how long he will miss, but it sounds as though it could be uh, a fairly serious sort of issue. Uh, at this point, we reduced his playing time, his saves by 40%. Uh, so that's quite a cut into that. Uh, it looks as though at this point that the saves will go to Ryan Madsen. Uh, Madsen has been pretty good through most of the uh, most of the campaign so far, and he becomes really the favorite. He struggled sometimes, but given up only one earned run over 11 appearances since July 8th, so Madsen is probably the guy to look at. Um, the uh, they they recently traded for Greg Holland uh, to uh, and to help bolster the pen, uh, but Holland has been kind of off and on, 
And one of those things where I, I don't think they're going to throw him in any kind of a, a safe situation right now. It's uh, really questionable whether he solidifies anything. He was so awful with the Cardinals that they had cut him, uh, uh, even though they have to keep paying him. And he had a 7.03 XERA, a 1.0 command, and a minus, minus 57 BPV. So Holland is certainly a name, but don't expect him to do much in Washington. Uh, as we said, Ryan Madsen looks like the guy that, that they will turn to at this point. Nick, I thought it was interesting that the player recalled to take Herrera's spot on the roster was Coda Glover. Uh, he was uh, missed most of the season, but I think last year he was given a shot at closing. I don't think he fared too well, but uh, is Coda Glover in the mix? Well, you know, Coda Glover, Coda Glover is probably a possibility. Uh, we, we've got him down for maybe only one save the rest of the way, but depending upon what happens in that pen, if you go back to last season, Coda Glover had a 5.12 ERA, so it wasn't really very good. Uh, an XERA of 4.02, but a BPV of 114. So there was some some skill going on a year ago with Coda Glover, uh, even though it wasn't converting very well into uh, into an ERA. A save percentage, uh, a strand percentage of 57% is what killed him. Uh, and so uh, there's a possibility that Coda Glover could get in the mix. My guess is they would be hesitant to hand him the ball at this point uh, based upon last season's performance and not not a whole lot of experience. On the other hand, uh, he had a shoulder issue in his own right that caught, cut short his 2017 season and uh, part of this year as well. So may, maybe Coda Glover might be somebody to keep in the back of your mind or if you need to speculate, put a guy on reserve and see what shakes out if that's possible. might not be a bad play. Uh, more closer news in Miami. Struggling Kyle Baraclow is out as Miami closer. Uh, Phil Hertz covers this story as well for playing time today. Nick, this is not a huge surprise given Baraclow's recent performance as closer. No, it's not. I mean, Barry Cloud has been struggling uh, a lot recently as, as the closer. So uh, certainly the, the announcement that he's been removed uh, is not a surprise, as you say. Uh, three possibilities really to replace him. The Probably the leading closer, the most obvious closer in waiting has been Drew Steckenrider. Uh, we, we promoted Steckenrider really early in draft time in the year. But uh, the problem is that very lately, Steckenrider has not been very good. Over the last 31 days, ending on August the 7th, an XERA of 4.75, uh, his a DOM of 8.7, which is well behind his career DOM of 11.7. So, uh, second rider has been struggling a bit. Uh, the other possibility, another possibility might be, um, Adam Conley. Uh, Conley has been a little bit, a little bit better over the same period. Uh, XERA 3.83, DOM of 9.3. He is a left-hander. And that might be an issue. Uh, maybe the, the Marlins could go with matchups or elect to use a committee. Another possibility would be uh, Tehran Guerrero. Uh, Guerrero just got back from the DL a week ago, throws in the upper 90s, an XCRA of 3.84, 11.5 DOM, but he has control issues, a control of 5.1. Uh, and that, of course, is unacceptable, especially in a closer. And just before we... Uh Went to this interview, Nick. I was looking at uh, Baraclaw's uh, last few day, uh, last few games, and uh, in his last six games, he gave up earned runs in all of them but one, including one four four earned runs and one five earned runs in two thirds of an inning both times. So, uh, I guess the the question for uh, manager Don Mattingly is, what were you waiting for? Gosh, uh, Los Angeles Dodgers closer Kenley Jansen, some scary news here, Nick. He, he was sent to the hospital on Thursday night with an irregular heartbeat before the game even started in Colorado, and he's going to be sent back to Los Angeles for more tests. Now, uh, this story was on ESPN early Friday morning, and uh, what's the uh, latest news on Kenley Jansen? 
Well, Jess, as you said, had been sent back to Los Angeles to visit his cardiologist. This is not something that's new. He's had this, this irregular heartbeat before. In fact, the, uh, uh, the last time I think it was actually happened was, was during an appearance in Colorado. So maybe the, the air has something to do with it. But anytime you're talking about, uh, as Dave Roberts said, anytime you're talking about the heart and irregular heartbeat, you've got to be very, very careful. Uh, the altitude is, uh, is could be a problem in Denver, and they wanted to be proactive in getting back to Los Angeles and see if things straightened out. He spent a month on the DL during 2011 because of blood thinning medication that he was tr- taking to treat that. Uh, it was out again uh, in 2012, so this is not something that's new for Kenley Jansen. And as they said, once they see the cardiologist, they'll know more about it. The uh, the save uh, on on Thursday night uh, was gotten by Scott Alexander. Um, Scott Alexander is not someone anyone may be real familiar with at this point. Uh, but Scott Alexander has actually pitched pitched relatively well this season, a 3.27 ERA in 52 games, uh, two saves at this point, two wins, 45 strikeouts in 52 innings, a 7.7 dom, uh, a 4.1 control, and that's not real good, giving him a 1.9 command ratio, which is something we certainly don't like to see, a BPV of 77. So, Scott Alexander is, does not have the closer-worthy kind of, of uh, skills that we would look for, but it looks like the guy who may get the chance to do the job in the short term, at least. I remember the Kenley Jensen story, and uh, I think he had a, a surgical procedure back in 2012 or 13, somewhere around there, to get his heart back on a normal rhythm. I wondered if it was a pacemaker or something like that. But anyhow, uh, best wishes go to Kenley Jansen for a quick recovery. Uh, just when it looked like New York Mets right-hander Anthony Swarzak was going to get a sustained run as the closer in New York, he returns to the DL second time this year. In fact, he's got right shoulder inflammation as well. What is it with uh, shoulders and closers right now? Holy cow. I know. Huh? <laughs> really strange. Phil Hertz on the coverage for Baseball HQ. Uh, who gets the few saves that are going to be had in City Field? They don't think that this uh, this injury is very serious, but it looks like Robert Gesellman got his four-out save on Saturday. Uh, so if you're looking for the guy who gets the rare Mets save, it might be him. On the surface, he's pitched better lately, but skill-wise, we're looking at a guy with a uh, 4.01 XERA and a 63 BPV over the last month. So again, not a really high skills closer uh, that you might be might be wanting to take a chance on. Yeah, and as uh, Phil said, and as seems obvious, there's not going to be a lot of saves there anyway. No, there's not. There's not really. It, it, you know, so it's all it's really kind of up in the air and not many to be had. So you know, I guess if we're talking about all these closers and changes, if I were looking to pick somebody up, I would go with Madsen uh, in Washington. There, there are going to be more saves there probably, and better better skill level with Madsen and better. Uh, um, history in terms of his work as a closer than any of these other guys who are taking over elsewhere. The other name that jumped out at me when I was looking at the Mets bullpen situation was Jerry Blevins. Uh, uh, Jerry Blevins has had a little bit of closing experience in the past. Any chance that maybe he gets a look? Well, you know, that's that's certainly a possibility. At this point, the, the Mets are not really going anywhere, and so they may try try various things. So certainly Blevins is, I think, a, a possibility. Um Blevins has not has not pitched all that well. Three point nine four ERA at this point, uh, but a little better over the last month. Two point four five ERA over the past month, uh, although his xERA is four point two three. And again, the skill level is not high. A fourteen BPV for the year, a fifty one BPV uh, uh, over the last month. So 
not somebody you would really want to take a, a great chance on, but he might pick up a save or two. Also a left-hander, which works against him, but his last seven outings, all no earned runs, which is not to be sneezed at, especially in a situation like the Mets are looking at. Uh, finally, some non-closer news. Pittsburgh traded for Tampa shortstop Adani Hechevarria for a minor leaguer. Uh, Rick Green covers Pittsburgh for playing time today. What role should we expect for Adani Hechevarria in a Pirates team trying to make the playoffs? I think at this point, uh, Hetchavaria is going to be a defensive replacement or a utility player. Uh, Manager Clint Hurdle said that he'll move around a bit. Uh, and so uh, that suggests that uh, just going to have a kind of uh, uh, utility role, uh, not somebody you're probably going to want to be using uh, in fantasy lineups as, as mainly a defensive replacement. Uh, we're eliminating the playing time at this point for Jung Ho Kong after reports he'll miss four to six weeks with a wrist injury. And Jordy Mercer and David Fries could lose some playing time as well with Hetcheveria coming over. No great, however, fantasy impact there. All right, Nick, thanks very much for helping us out. We do appreciate it, and uh, we'll talk to you again in a week's time. All right, thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go to the American League and Baseball HQ Director of News and Analysis and a very fine fantasy writer in his own right, Jock Thompson, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks, PD. Good to be here. Let's start in Houston. Boy, oh boy, one injury after another for the Astros as they try to get ready for the playoff rounds. Uh, outfielder George Springer was placed on the 10-day DL with a sprained left thumb. Uh, they recalled Derek Fisher from AAA. You cover the Astros for Baseball HQ as a team analyst. What happens with the Houston outfield without Springer? Well, what's really been made clear is that Marwan Gonzalez and Tony Kemp are the primary left fielders when Springer is healthy. So along with Josh Reddick, they're going to be in the in the outfield for most of the games with Springer out. Uh, given that he's up, he took uh, Springer's spot. I thought Derek Fisher might get a few looks. Uh, he's had a decent year at AAA. Uh, but he's been really unproductive at the major league level, and this is a team that's trying to round into postseason shape. So he hasn't he, he hasn't gotten a start yet at all. Uh, veteran Jake Marisnik is back after being up and down uh, uh, from AAA between AAA and Houston, and although he struggled with pretty poor contact all season, he's seven for 16 in August with the Astros with a couple of home runs. So he's in the outfield mix coming off the bench. Um, Fisher is pretty much on the bench for insurance, and he actually looks now like the roster casualty when Carlos Correa comes back off the DL this weekend. Right, because Marwin Gonzalez is filling in in the infield, and as those guys start to get back into action, that, that'll push Marwin full-time back to the outfield pretty much. That's right. That's exactly right. Houston took another shot with news that right-handed starter Lance McCullers, having a good year, was placed on the 10-day DL with right elbow discomfort. This does not sound good anytime you hear the words elbow discomfort. The uh, news is rarely good. It seems ominous for the defending champs. Yeah, it is ominous. In fact, uh, his uh, his prognosis has been uh, uh, upgraded or downgraded, however you want to look at it, probably downgraded. He's going to miss at least a month. And when you're talking about getting into that first week of September on a postseason team, it seems to me it's kind of doubtful that McCullers is going to get back to this rotation. Uh, um, he's had a lengthy history of, of injuries. Um, uh, I, I just... I, I just don't like his chances for the rest of the year. I don't think his owner should be counting on him. Yeah, I think he's missed more than 100 days on the DL over the last couple of years, elbow problems, shoulder problems as well in 2016. What will Houston do to replace McCullers' innings in the starting rotation? 
Well, this is kind of interesting, particularly in this day and age. They don't need a fifth starter until August 19th. And in fact, they only need two number fives in August before rosters can expand in September. So they have plenty of time to reset their rotation and make some decisions. And of course, the best news is that their depth has them in such good shape to weather this kind of a setback, uh, particularly with an expanded roster. The next start by anyone other than the original five rotation members from opening day, believe it or not, is going to be Houston's first of the season. Uh, the favorites, if you're looking for a traditional number five to replace McCullers, would be Colin McHugh and and, uh, and uh, Brad Peacock, both of whom were in the rotation last year and both of whom did very well. Um, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if Houston keeps them right where they are. Uh, McHugh has been terrific in long relief, has an ERA near one. Um, Peacock hasn't been much worse. His ERA is 2.9 or something like that. Uh, um I don't think they want to try to fix what isn't broke with regard to those guys. It wouldn't surprise me at all if they use their depth um, to construct some bullpen games from those fifth starts. They have uh, Siono Perez up from the minors. He's been a swing man. Forrest Whitley is a is a pretty darn good prospect when he's healthy. Uh, they could even add Josh James, who's the, the minor league strikeout leader right now, to the 40-man roster. He's at AAA. they got a lot of options here. They do, and uh, what crossed my mind is that they could indeed put together a pretty decent-looking uh, bullpen day if they had to do it with uh, all of the depth they have there. Uh, Chris Devensky's a, a multi-inning guy as well. They you know, get two or three innings out of him, and then they could just throw one inning at a time uh, with all these terrific pitchers that they have. They're not in as bad of trouble as a lot of teams would be if they lost a pitcher of the caliber of uh, Lance McCullers. Yeah, they're just they're just really really deep, and these guys have a lot of ability. And in short bursts, they may even be able to dial it up a notch. Uh, Houston's Houston's pretty tough right now. Houston also reinstated uh, Roberta Osuna officially from the restricted list. We were expecting him in a setup role. We talked about it last week, I think, and I presume nothing's changed. Yeah, that's right. Hector Rondon has a grasp of the of the closer role right now, but on a fine team like Houston, obviously. Uh, Osuna could vulture some wins if they want to give uh, uh, Rondon a blow. It's an interesting situation given the the blowback that the Astros have received for adding Osuna, who'd been suspended on a domestic violence charge. And maybe this is another reason, a good reason, to keep his profile low for the time being. I still like Rondon, uh, but I still think Osuna's going to pick up a, at least a save or two down the stretch. I think so, too. I, I think he's slotted in right behind Rondon as the primary setup guy ahead of Will Harris, Ryan Presley, who they just acquired from Minnesota a little while back. And uh, Davinsky's uh, a little earlier in the game, at more of that uh, multi-inning role. And I can see Roberto Osuna not only vulturing saves, but I can see him vulturing some wins. They're a good team. They have a lot of pop. And uh, if he gets into a tie game late because they don't want to use Rondon, then all of a sudden that puts uh, Roberto Osuna in the position to pick up some wins in a vulture role and that could be uh, adding to his value down the stretch as well i spoke with uh, nick in the national league news about washington releasing sean kelly and now oakland picked him up i think as some kind of trade they sent them some international slot money got cash back one of those kind of things basically they just grabbed uh, grabbed him after washington gave up on him rod trusdell covered this story for playing time today what role will sean kelly play in oakland's bullpen well, this is what Oakland has been doing pretty well since they since they uh, got into contention for the wild card. Uh, they've been picking up uh, pitchers for for pennies on the dollar, uh, guys who aren't great but are good and who are who, who can help them. Uh, um, 
Kelly has a gopher ball problem uh, with, with Washington, but if he moves to Oakland, uh, the, the Coliseum is obviously going to help him here. Other than that, his skills have been pretty good. He's not walking a lot of guys. I think his walk rate is under two per nine. Uh, he's still striking out eight or nine uh, a game. He's going to slide in in middle relief. He's obviously uh, 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 not going to uh, uh, be a late inning guy, not the way Oakland has, has that thing set up right now. And we'll talk about that more in a few minutes uh but this is a really good pickup and it's going to help oakland probably do some bullpen games as well down the stretch and they're going to need those games in september well you mentioned uh, that oakland made some other moves uh, after the post waivers trade deadline passed uh, we got the trade frenzy started by acquiring fernando rodney from minnesota in oakland where does he slot into what has been a very successful oakland bullpen so far yeah, and, and, and even Rodney, who's had a really good year, 309 ERA, 25 saves. He's still striking out over 10 batters a game. Uh, he's not going to replace Brake Trinan, who's now an elite closer. Uh, but along with Juris Familia, who Oakland also added, that's another competent arm, late-inning arm to that bullpen. Uh, um, he's probably going to um, do a little bit of mix and matching uh, in the late innings. I, I, I still think Trinan's going to get most of the saves, and I think we have him at 85% right now after the after the Rodney acquisition. Uh, but this is a really impressive bullpen. It is, and I think they're going to be fun to watch as well because, uh, as we know, when it gets into the playoff time, uh, presuming that they get into the actual playoffs, the uh, rotation shrinks and more and more load gets put onto these guys in the bullpen to, to get outs and they can turn batters into outs really effectively with Trinan, Trevino, Familia, now Rodney, maybe Sean Kelly adding him. And that's not the end of the bullpen for Oakland either. They've got some other guys they can throw out there as well. This is a well-set-up team for the playoffs especially. Yeah, and particularly given that the weak spot still is the rotation from an injury standpoint, uh, we'll talk about that a little uh, a little bit more as well. Um, but um, they, they've got some injury risk in that bullpen. They've got some guys who are who look like right now they're they're five six inning guys, maybe even less. That bullpen's going to be a big part of uh, their success down the stretch. And with Fernando Rodney out of the picture, Jock, who gets the closer role in Minnesota? Yeah, that's a real good uh, question. Uh, this just happened, obviously, uh, the, uh, the, the late late the night before we've recorded this session. But uh, it looks like to start out, it's going to be Trevor, Her- Trevor Hildenberger, who's been pretty awful against right-handed pitching. Uh, his I think he's he has a an 824, or I should say, right-handed hitters. He has an 824 OPS against uh, right-handed hitters. Addison Reed is another guy. He's shown some real skill slippage this year. Uh, 4.74 ERA with an expected ERA to match. He was put in the the Thursday, August ninth game in the ninth inning, and he lost that. Uh, also, Trevor, Taylor Rogers and and Trevor May. Uh, May is May is kind of interesting. He's coming off of Tommy John surgery. He's always had big swing and miss, uh, and he's actually looked good in his first four innings. Uh, um, his MLB track record hasn't been great. He's always uh, he, like I said, he's always been able to get a lot of swing and miss, so he may be an interesting name to watch, but this is not a, a real good collection of, of pitchers to speculate on close, on closers either. Uh, I don't know if any one of them is going to get a, a five or six saves down the stretch to help you out, but we'll see what happens. Yeah, I find this situation sort of intriguing because 
you have uh, Addison Reed, who has closer experience in the past, and sometimes managers put a lot more emphasis on that than they should. Hildenberger has some closing experience in Minnesota, not very successful, as you mentioned. And then you got Rogers. Of the three of them, I think I like Rogers the best. He has the best expected ERA. It's barely over three. The other two are in the 4.5s. Uh, Rogers, the only one striking out 10 plus guys per nine innings. They're down around seven and a half, those other two guys. And he's walking the fewest of the three as well. Uh, again, I think you're right to say the only way to make sure you're going to get the saves in Minnesota would be to sign all of these guys as free agents, and that's impractical for most. If you really want to gamble uh, on skills, I'd say Rogers, but I really don't know either. Yeah, I would agree. I think I think Rogers and May, who aren't who aren't everybody's favorites to begin with, uh, might might luck out and, and get a few saves here. If I were going to speculate, I would go one of those two before the others. Oakland acquired Detroit right-hander Mike Fires for the stretch run. Uh, Rod Truesdell covered this from the Oakland side. Uh, how does moving to Oakland affect Mike Fires? Again, this is another good another good Oakland pickup. We keep repeating ourselves here. Uh, uh, Comerica Park's uh, pretty neutral, and and uh, the Coliseum in Oakland is 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 pretty friendly. Uh, um, he's a he's a fly baller who's going to be able to use the Coliseum's home run uh, suppression. Um, He's he's outpitched his expected ERA. I wouldn't be surprised to see Fires struggle down the stretch. He's one of those guys you you don't expect to see do as well as he did. But but he's made an adjustment. His ERA is uh, 3.48, pretty outstanding. Expected ERA 4.69. So you know what I'm talking about. Uh, he's had an 80% strand rate. Uh, still, he's Fires has gone from a sub 500 team in Detroit to 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 a winning team in Oakland. So uh, his value gets a little boost here. I was looking at, at Mike Fires, and uh, two things stand out to me. Uh, one of them is the 80% strand rate you mentioned, but he's also been giving up home runs at a 1.5 per nine inning rate. And uh, boy, those two those two numbers don't really sync up very well, do they, Jock? Uh, if he's giving up that many home runs, he shouldn't be stranding this many runners. Uh, something's got to give, and gosh, if he's whatever he's doing, if, if it's working for him because of the fly balls, except for the ones that leave the yard, he's actually maybe uh, going to be able to maintain a really high strand rate because of the home run suppression you mentioned in uh, Oakland. Yeah, if he can keep this going for sure, and it's and he's going to get innings. Um, the number the number five starter was Frankie Montas, and they sent him down to AAA in partly to limit his his innings. Uh, but uh, right now, uh, Mike Fires is solidly entrenched in that rotation, and and probably ahead of guys like Brett Anderson, who is obviously an injury waiting to happen at some point. So so Fires is going to get his innings, and if he pitches like he did in Detroit, uh, um, he's he's going to be pretty good. And by the way, before I forget, uh, we didn't mention in the bullpen Yusmero Pettit, who's been uh, kind of the uh, the two three inning guy for Oakland and been very effective in that role as well. Uh, going back to the Mike Fires deal, Tom Kephart covered it from the Detroit perspective. Much less interesting to fantasy owners, I'm sure. But what happens with the Tigers rotation now that Fires is gone? Blaine Hardy has been starting for uh, the Tigers uh, while Michael Fulmer, Fulmer's been on the DL with a with an oblique strain. Now the departure of Fires, I think, pretty much ensures that Hardy uh, is going to be a starter. He's also uh, been a, an overachiever from the standpoint his ERA is in the is in the mid threes and his expected ERA is in the fours somewhere. Uh, he's he's overcome some um, some some weak strikeout numbers with very good control and a and a and a and a, and a good ground ball rate. Um, he's likely to stay in the rotation now um, through year end. Uh, Drew Verhagen, Tom 
Tom Kephart thinks that Drew Verhagen, who's a reliever right now, a multi-inning guy, is likely to see more action uh, um, while Fulmer is still out uh, taking taking fire spot. Uh, Verhagen is a guy who's actually got some pretty interesting strikeout and ground ball numbers. Uh, um, terrible ERA, 608. Uh, I don't know how he's going to do as a starter. I Like you uh, alluded to early uh, or before before I started talking, I, I don't watch the Tiger pitching staff that much, at least at the MLB level. They obviously have some, some good minor leaguers, but uh, that pitching staff isn't going to help you very much from a fantasy standpoint. No, it's not. It's a real interesting to look at the the uh, top five starters there. Uh, Matt Boyd, Liriano, Zimmerman, now Blaine Hardy and Fulmer. Their ex-ERAs are, listen to this, 445, 488, 424, 444, 423. So they're all, you know, within half a run of each other in ex-ERA, and their ERAs are pretty much following right along, 433, 437, 431, 450, and the outliers, Blaine Hardy, with that weird 363 uh, ERA on a 444 expected ERA, I don't know what to make of the Detroit pitching staff, and I don't know from a fantasy perspective how willing I'd be to really invest anything in any of them. Yeah, exactly, and that's the problem. You don't, you, you, you just don't know if if Hardy's going to go through a correction phase or not in these six, seven weeks. You sure can't count on him continuing that ERA. Uh, but now with fires gone, he's going to get the chance. All right, Jock. Uh, another interesting week. We'll have more news to talk about in a week's time, and I'll talk to you then. Okay, PD. See ya. Jock Thompson is Baseball HQ's Director of News and Analysis and our man on the American League beat here for Baseball HQ Radio. When we return our Baseball HQ commentaries, we have the frequent flyer and pitcher matchups coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. And listen to these articles that'll help you down the stretch. In from A to Zinke, columnist Fred Zinke looks at 50 for 50, the 50 players who will help the most for the last 50 games of the season. In playing time tomorrow, analyst Brandon Cruz looks at roster situations in the American League Central, including Jason Kipnis on the hot seat in Cleveland, Detroit's perplexing commitment to old-timers, and a possible rotation shakeup in Minnesota. And in Facts and Flukes, we have a deep look spotlight with Ryan Bloomfield looking at Texas infielder Jerickson Profar. Those are just three articles among literally dozens, a small sample of all the great content you'll find at Baseball HQ all the time. Player performance validation in Facts and Flukes, news updates in playing time today, roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow, buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers. We have fantasy market analysis, injury analysis, and tools like our player projections, daily dashboard, leading indicators, and other content and tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have our pitcher matchups report. And leading off, it's the Frequent Flyer, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer because they could be available in your free agent pool and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's Frequent Flyer, Toronto third baseman Vladimir Guerrero Jr., and here to tell you more is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. He's currently ranked by some, okay, many industry analysts as a top prospect in baseball. 
Our own Chris Blessing is top third base prospects in 2018 article on BaseballHQ.com. He even said, descriptively, that he has, quote, potential out the wazoo. But timing the market for 19-year-old Toronto Blue Jays third baseman, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., can be daunting to say the least. So let's begin with what we know. First, mega prospect Vladimir Guerrero Jr., as he was referred to in Jeremy Deloney's 2018 Toronto Blue Jays organizational report on BaseballHQ.com, is probably long gone in dynasty leagues, but might still be available in redraft leagues. Next, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is having an amazing season. Moving through four levels of the minors in 2018, going from the rookie Gulf Coast League all the way to the AAA International League, while batting a combined 405 with 15 home runs in 2018. Not bad. Then again, why would Toronto rush him? They're out of contention. In other words, there's absolutely no indication from Toronto's front office that Vladimir Guerrero Jr. will arrive in 2018. That's why Vladimir Guerrero Jr., like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. Looking beyond the numbers, and they are exceptional numbers for 2018, there are several subtle clues pointing to Vladimir Guerrero possibly debuting in 2018. One such clue may be the timing of his promotion to AAA. In other words, isn't it entirely possible that a July 31st jump to AAA, which appears to be a set schedule, could foretell a September call-up? Another clue is the injury to third baseman Josh Donaldson, who has been out with a calf injury since May and will become an unrestricted free agent at the end of the season. So wouldn't it make sense for Toronto to give Vladimir Guerrero Jr. an extended look in 2018? Of course it would. Plus, it's important to remember that, despite his age, 19, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. did sign as a 16-year-old in 2015, so he already has three years of professional experience under his belt. But, as Brent Hershey pointed out in his April 12th The Eyes Have It commentary on BaseballHQ.com, 19-year-olds aren't supposed to look like this, nor play at this level. But he does, and perhaps that's the best reason to consider adding Vladimir Guerrero Jr. as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Alex Becky is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has our frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for pitcher matchups. Baseball HQ rates matchups on a scale centered on zero. Starts higher than plus one are rated strong starts, while starts rated minus 0.51 or worse are rated weak starts. Those in between are judgment calls. And here with a scan of Arizona right-hander Zach Godley in Cincinnati to take on right-hander Luis Castillo, as well as some other weekend matchups, Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. Fresh off a of VIP baseball experience with Alex Becky in Minnesota and Iowa, we return with another weekend matchup segment before more travels take us away over the next three weeks. Our road trip included scouting for future frequent flyers from six different minor league teams and in-depth interviews with two Chicago Black Sox ghost players from the Field of Dreams. 
This weekend's marquee matchup is, once again, a contest between the only two starters facing one another with strong start matchup ratings. And they have even more than that in common. Both are right-handers, both were dropped by disappointed owners early on, both are now salvaging their seasons, and both rated notice by BaseballHQ.com starting pitcher buyer's guide analyst Stephen Nickrand on August 4. Since our revised matchup rating system now adjusts to recent performance more quickly than our previous iteration, you might be surprised at what there is to see in Cincinnati this Sunday. Visiting Arizona 28-year-old Zach Godley brings in the higher matchup rating at 099. But since he's 25-year-old Luis Castillo is not far behind with an 073. Nick Rand highlighted Godley's goods as follows, quote, Zach Godley might be ready to finish 2018 like he ended 2017. While his stats in July weren't very intriguing, 428 ERA, 134 whip, his skills were very good. 11.0 strikeouts per nine dominance rate, 3.5 walks per nine control rate, 50% ground ball rate, 131 BPV. Only Kenta Maeda generated more whiffs in July among National League starting pitchers than Godley did with his 15.9% swinging strike rate, unquote. And about Castillo, Nick Rand wrote, quote, Luis Castillo resembled in July what we saw late in 2017. He put up a nifty 225 ERA and 104 whip over five starts, and those marks received plenty of support from his skills. 8.0 strikeouts per nine dominance rate, 1.3 walks per nine control rate, 40% ground ball rate, 128 BPV. His command sub-indicators were even more electric. 15.1% swinging strike rate, 66% first pitch strike rate, and 33% ball rate, unquote. Castillo came into 2018 with slightly higher expectations than Godley, garnering an average draft position of 92 after a 2017 BPV of 128. Godley's ADP was a bit lower at 117, and his BPV was slightly less at 122. For 2018, Castillo continues to hold a narrow edge with a BPV of 95 to Godley's 87. But Castillo's 2017 was fueled by a fortunate hit rate of 26% and strand rate of 76% in the small sample of his first 15 major league starts. This season's rates for his next 23 big league outings are closer to normal, with a hit rate of 31% and a strand rate of 67%. Godley had 40 starts for Arizona before his 23 this season, so his track record is nearly twice as long. And his 2017 was based on a hit rate of 29% and a strand rate of 73%. It's team context that cements the 0.25 difference in this weekend's matchup ratings favoring Godley. As of this recording, the D-backs and Dodgers were tied for first in the West and tied for the second wildcard spot with the Braves. The Reds were last in the Central and 13 and a half games out of the wildcard race. At home, Cincinnati is five games under 500, 24th in Major League Baseball. On the road, Arizona is nine games over 500, fifth in the majors. Versus teams under 500, Arizona is five games over 500, 20th in MLB. Versus teams over 500, Cincinnati is 16 games under 500, 16th in MLB. Versus right-handers, the D-backs are seven games over 500, ranking 13th in the majors. The Reds are 14 games under 500, ranking 26th. The D-backs are two games over 500 in each of their past 10, 20, and 30 games. The Reds are at least two games under 500 in each of their past 10, 20, and 30 games. 
In short, all signs point to an Arizona advantage, but Castillo is well positioned for a respectable performance. Chris Sale headlines this weekend's maximum matchup ratings with a magnificent 357. He's not expected to miss a beat in his scheduled return from a short trip to the DL for inflammation in his pitching shoulder, worrisome as that is. Four more starters have matchup ratings in the twos, and another eight are in the ones. Some interesting names among those include Walker Bueller, Joe Musgrove, Jack Flaherty, Kyle Gibson, and Robbie Ray. Our minimum matchup ratings unveil eight below minus one, including two below minus two, both in the American League. That pair is Texas's Drew Hutchison, who goes up against Lance Lynn and the Yankees at the stadium, and Chicago's Dylan Covey, who's at home against Cleveland's Carlos Carrasco. Carrasco boasts the second-best matchup rating of the weekend at 284, and Covey has the worst matchup rating of the weekend at minus 243. That's a matchup differential of exactly 6.0 favoring Carrasco. Check our site to get updated matchup information every day. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick does our weekend pitcher matchups during the season. When we return, part two of our feature expert interview with Ray Murphy, co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com. That's coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. The 1-1, swing and a drive to deep left field. It's got a chance. Upton going back. It's going to go. Home run, Bartolo Colon. Repeating, home run, Bartolo Colon. Seven-line army in right field might tear this ballpark down. Colon carried his bat with him until he was about 10 feet from first base. He's taking the slowest home run trot you've ever seen. He just got to Tim Tuffle, the third base coach. He is approaching home plate. He touches home plate with his first major league home run. And they are going to give him a silent treatment in the dugout. They have vacated. The Mets have left the building. Bartolo Colon is the loneliest man in San Diego as he reaches the Mets dugout after hitting a home run and there's nobody there to greet him. And now here they come up the dugout steps. Wow. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Ray Murphy, co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com. Ray, welcome back. I'm back and I'm ready to roll again, Patrick. Ray, I'd like to talk about the best weekend of the fantasy baseball year outside draft day and for some people, including draft day. And of course, I mean mean first pitch Arizona. You and uh, co-general manager at BaseballHQ.com, Brent Hershey, are putting things together again this year. Uh, Before we talk about the particulars of this year's event, how long does it take to get all the planning done? Well, let's see. We're three months out from the event now, and Brent and I have already been talking about it for, oh, about a month now. So that's probably... uh, Probably the best way to answer the question. It doesn't quite take, you know, half the year, but, you know, certainly more than a third. When you guys sit down to do the planning, how do you set out your goals? What are you trying to accomplish for the customers and attendees at First Pitch Arizona? You know, the great thing about it is, you know, the customers actually sort of give us the answer key. Um, you know, we're, one thing that Ron established when he put this event together that is, uh, you know, one of the things that makes it great is he has a very detailed subscri- uh, attendee survey that we, you know, Im- that we stress to everyone out at the event every year that they should they should take the time to fill it out and give us their honest and complete feedback about every single session and the entire weekend as a whole and then we have that feedback from 
everyone who attended and we get to use that as sort of the, okay, this tells us what worked and what didn't work this year. And really it's just spells out for us how to change it the next year and how to make it, how to make it better. And I think that really is the secret to how, it, how the event literally gets to be better every year. When they fill out their, uh, when they fill out their survey forms, I imagine a lot of it is just rate the uh, facts and flukes panel one through five, just rate the uh, live podcast. Uh, how did you enjoy that if you attended and so forth? So you get a, a, a basic ranking like that. But what else do you learn as far as what the, uh, what the attendees are looking for and what they like? You know, the, th- the thing about it to me that is always the most interesting, like you say, you always get the ratings of the, you know, this panel was good or this one didn't really apply to my league or whatever. Um, but the, the most valuable feedback is the stuff that we just never thought of or the stuff that, you know, we, even with the two or two of us and other HQ staffers around, you know, we can't be everywhere at once or stuff that, you know, stuff that happened in a session we didn't get to or somebody who has an idea for, a how to take a particular session to a next to the next level like hey this discussion was great but it didn't touch on topic Y that I thought would come up somewhere along the way maybe that's something we talk about the next year and you know I'll look at I'll look at that comment and be like oh you know you're absolutely right that would have been a great topic oh and by the way you know this other industry speaker who wasn't on that panel I happen to know has expertise on that let's take that idea and spin it into a different kind of breakout session and then figure out you know, who the best p- people are on our uh, speaker roster to talk about that. So, you know, just um, they're great about not just rating what they liked and didn't like, but, you know, pretty explicitly telling us how to make it better or what they wanted to see. And then for us, it, you know, that you know that makes the job a lot easier because we don't have to guess at what the people want. They're actually telling us. And it's just our, you know, then, then we just go to the chessboard and start winding up the pieces of speakers and program and timing and logistics just to, just to lay it all out and try to sort of give everybody what they said they wanted. I was going to ask, what are the big challenges in putting together an event like this? It runs four days, counting the uh, opening Thursday night all the way through Sunday. There's a million things going on. It must be like trying to to build a car using tweezers. And, you know, it's something like that. The uh, there, there are the number of logistics are challenging when you've got you know we're somewhere in the neighborhood of thirty plus industry speakers now, all of whom have different expertise and want to talk about. Um, topics that are related to those areas and we want to be able to give them the opportunity to do that sort of put everyone in their best position to succeed while still meeting what as i was saying this the attendees have told us they want to hear about and then you overlay that with the constraints of you know four days sounds like a lot but it's really not we could we could easily probably program twice as many panels as we actually do so trying to you know take 10 pounds of expertise down into a five pound bag uh, and then overlay that with the game schedule, the travel, the hotel constraints, and you know how many rooms do we have at any given time, and you know even down to the level of does this uh, does this speaker need a projector in their room, or or, or are they just uh, doing like a roundtable sort of thing where they just need the microphones? You know, it's uh, you get from it goes from macro level to micro level concerns and back and forth again. So that's uh, that that just gives you a taste of what we're up against. Well, I know this is a bit like talking about how the sausages get put together, which is uh, sometimes interesting and sometimes not. But I can tell our listeners that in the background uh, during the uh, run-up to First Pitch Arizona, you guys are in contact with uh, everybody on the staff at BaseballHQ.com trying to find out who's coming. Uh, I imagine slotting them into hosting roles and panel hosting and that kind of stuff as well. How many Baseball HQ staff members do you expect to turn up at First Pitch Arizona 2018? 
you know, I just pulled together the uh, full list of attendees yesterday between uh, you know paid registration so far plus the industry speakers plus the HQ staff, and it was uh, the HQ staff was I think we're at we're over twenty. Uh, so obviously me and Brent and you and uh, you know a, a whole crew of the uh, attendees, uh, Doug Dennis, Jock Thompson, uh, Ryan Bloomfield from you know those who people will know from the radio show. But you know we're pushing half the staff uh, with, when we get to that kind of number. So it's uh, it's a big group. And how about uh, the industry experts? How many of those are, are coming along? I know it's always. Uh, it kind of doubles as an informal convention of the business out in Arizona. A lot of business t- takes place. A lot of uh, the the experts get to see each other, which is important to them as well. Uh, how many industry experts do you expect? Uh, it's more. It's more than thirty now. There are a few. There are always a few fence sitters. You know, not because they don't want to come, but because the uh, deal with um, you know logistics on the home front and that sort of thing. And some of these guys do. Uh, you know, have football obligations on the weekend too, so they got to make sure that they have coverage for that. But uh, you know, we're over 100 uh, paid attendee registrations. But the you know between the HQ staff and the industry speakers, our overall attendance right now is sitting right at 160. I think so. That gives you an idea of the uh, you know sort of paid attendee to speaker staff ratio, which is you know from a paid attendee perspective is great it's you know one and a half to one or something like that you have uh <laughs> you you almost have one-to-one access to uh all these great industry voices a hundred sounds like uh ahead of schedule is it not yes it is it's actually i think as of today we have a couple of more people than we had all of last year and then we have that three months still to go so we're uh super excited that the uh event seems to be taking off a little bit and uh, in fact our biggest concern right now is how many people we can actually accommodate and what our max is we we may actually sell this thing out so if anyone's thinking about um coming in as fence sitting then the time to get in is now because uh there is an upper bound to how many people we can fit into the uh into the uh ballroom space at the courtyard salt river so we're uh talking to the hotel about what that number is right now but we're uh we're getting close to scraping it Plus, there's only so much room around the fire pit before you're out so far that you're not getting warmed up. Yeah, I don't know if they would build bleachers around the fire pit for us because that's probably what we would need. I love the fire pit at that hotel. Uh, a couple of years ago, we were out there, and uh, after the games are over, and it gets cold at night in Arizona. You know, people who ha- haven't been there or are unfamiliar with the desert climate, it's hotter than uh, you know what <laughs> in the daytime. You really have to be careful about the sun and the heat and staying hydrated and staying out of the sun, sunscreen, all that sort of thing. And then at night, if it's been a clear day at night, it gets really cold, com- comparatively speaking, and you have to wear a jacket and sweatpants and all that kind of stuff. And so gathering around the fire pit in the back of the hotel there was uh, was really a lot of fun. And, um, geez, remember, Ray, at, at some point we must have had 60, 70 people milling around out there. And, again, it was had a very convention-like atmosphere. Uh, um, the attendees and the industry people and the HQ people all milling around, telling jokes, uh, talking about the games that we just seen, talking about the prospects talking about the game you know the the game of fantasy baseball it was a really interesting very informal part of the of the proceedings that i think is a real strength that's exactly right the um you get so many different perspectives and you you can have a over the course of the weekend you might have a question in the back of your mind or 
one of the panel discussions leads to a question you want to ask and you didn't get a you know maybe you didn't get a chance to ask it in the q a in the actual session but out at the fire pit you might catch one of the panelists or just bring, you know mention a question to some other random person standing next to you and they you know have a different take on it or you know shed some light on it for you and the the um the term i really like that um Brent actually threw into one of our promotional emails this week that I really that I thought really summed it up is he called the he called the weekend an immersive experience and I'm not sure there's a better I can think of a better way to characterize it than that it's really just you know a 24/7 you know uh, at at every venue at every turn around the hotel corridors you know you're just uh, surrounded by you know 160 180 people who are just uh, you know eating and eating and breathing the same event and exchanging ideas about it it's uh, it's fascinating to watch. Well, now, Ray, you mentioned that the uh, attendees get to put down ideas for what they might want to add to the agenda or subtract from it. So what's new at this year's event? We're deep into the, uh, you know, sort of negotiation part of the uh, program development right now. We're going back and forth with all of the industry people, like I said, about what they want to talk about and, you know, comparing that to what people have said they want to hear about. So a um, couple of things I can tease. Uh, what We've got a new, actually, attendee from last year, uh, who pitched a concept to us that we're going to put into uh, the breakout schedule. He's sort of a, uh, a professor of ethics who uh, does a lot of research. A lot of his research is um, focused on fantasy games as a sort of a testing ground for his research efforts. So he's going to have a nice panel on sort of the ethical considerations of various aspects of our games, which I think will be pretty cool. Um, sort of along similar lines, we're trying to put together the right panelists for a... Um, sort of mental side of the game panel. Everyone talks about the, you know, the statistical analysis and then, you know, as a sort of a second tier on top of that, you get into, you know, strategy with, you know, category management and those sorts of things we were talking about earlier. But there's sort of a third tier of, um, you know, sort of the mental side of it. You know, the, the, the for those who like to make analogies to poker, it's the sort of playing the other players at your table rather than playing the game sort of level of thinking about it. So uh, we're, try- we're putting together some people who can maybe talk about the game from uh, from that perspective and how they um, how there might be some edges to be gained there. So those are some things that, you know, trying to, you know, push the envelope and bend the uh, structure of the thing to look a little bit different every year and keep the ideas fresh. There will always be, you know, some of the, you know, tried and true stuff that we do and have fun with over the course of the weekend from, uh, you know, Ron's introduction with uh, f- some games of Forecaster Jeopardy to uh, the Fat and Flute panels that everybody enjoys so much on Saturday morning. So, as always, it'll be uh, a little bit old, a little bit new. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt with Ray Murphy. Co-General Manager of BaseballHQ.com. We're talking about First Pitch Arizona coming up uh, this November. Uh, and Ray, uh, a big part of the focus in the marketing of the event and in attending the event is getting to go see the ball games in the Arizona Fall League. Uh, the first thing I need to know is, uh, is the Arizona Fall Stars game, their their annual All-Star game, is it going to coincide with the event so that we can go see that game? Yes, it does. Have we heard yet about any of the players being assigned to the Arizona Fall League? No, that should come probably next week. We got this week. We got the schedule, uh, which includes the confirmation of the Fall Stars game on our Saturday night, sort of the capstone of our weekend. Uh, and we got the ballpark schedule for Thursday and Friday. So now I can go book the uh, Thursday night party at the right stadium and that sort of thing. Uh, but the prospect announcements are 
I believe, due next week. Brent and I were speculating a little bit this week about who we might see on that list, but they're, uh, the official announcement of those are another week or so away. If I remember correctly, there are no games on Sunday. Is that correct? That is correct. Probably everybody's worried about <laughs> as as sparse as the attendance is. It might get even lower on a football day. I guess that's something that they have to keep in mind, or maybe they just want to give everybody a day off. Who knows? Uh, speaking of the players, you've been going to First Pitch Arizona a long, long time. What players really stand out in your memory? You know, a couple of <coughs> you know, I'll try to avoid the same stories. I always I, I always seem to tell here the uh, you know, the, the highlight that everybody talks about. Um, is seeing young Mike Trout and Bryce Harper in the same outfield uh, several years ago, right before they both hit the majors. Uh, the true old timers, Ron Chandler and company, you know, the, those who started this, uh, you know, going on, you know, this is the 24th year of it. So, but it's got to be 15 or so years ago now where they saw some third baseman named Pujols have an absolute ridiculous um, fall league, and then they were all on him in the begin in the beginning of the next season at the drafts, and they all got the uh, monster rookie season from Albert Pujols. Um, more recently, you know, I, I was reminded when Austin Meadows finally got healthy and got to the majors this year that um, he put on a show a couple of years ago out there. I think he had a couple of home runs in a Fall Stars game, if not if I'm not mistaken, and. Uh, you know, we've all sort of been waiting to see that kind of thing from him ever since, and the injury's kind of gotten away, but he's now, you know, graduated to the majors. And, you know, more recently than Pujols, the example I can think of of the guy who was just man among boys out there like nobody ever else was, uh, was Chris Bryant, who had just a, just an absurd fall league one year and roll, and then, you know, the, then the next year the Cubs played the games with him where they sent him to the minors to work on his defense for two weeks, and then he, you know, then he came up and went bonkers in the majors. So those are a couple that come to mind. I did a promotional announcement last week for uh, First Pitch Arizona, and the guy I mentioned was Andrew McCutcheon. You, you mentioned him earlier as possible trade bait. And uh, I remember he had two triples in a game, ran down everything in the in the outfield, and just one of those things where every time he came to the plate, you, there was kind of a hush in the crowd, and everybody sat forward in their seats uh, to see what he was going to do next. Uh, and uh, Andrew McCutcheon turned out to be terrific, as you mentioned. You know, the other thing that comes to my mind also is uh, – Players who weren't impressive, you know, I, I remember, and I think I mentioned this last week as well, Ray, uh, Reed Brignac was in that, the same game that we saw Harper and Trout. He was on the uh, other team, and where these two guys looked like ball players, they were super intense even at that young age, and then Brignac came up and he looked disenchanted, he looked disinterested, like, uh, you know, a bit of the big league attitude, I don't need to be here kind of thing, and I remember thinking to myself, I don't think I'll ever roster this guy in a fantasy league, I don't think he's got the mindset for it, and I think that turned out to be not a bad call, and uh, just last year, you'll remember, we got to see Ronald Acuna and Victor Robles, and Acuna looked like a hustler, and uh, Robles, to be charitable, did not. You know, he was he was actually pulled from a game that we were at because he he didn't leg out a, a dunker fly ball that landed in the outfield, and they threw him out because he had given up on the play. So there's it, it runs both ways. Remember Mark Appel? We were all so curious to see him, and he wasn't good, and Archie Bradley was. Boy, it's just a million guys that you get to see and say that I saw this guy back when. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. When we talk to the scouts uh, and the uh, guys who watch all of these guys in the AFL, you know, when we get out there on – get get into session on Friday morning, the first thing we do is a big, you know, nearly two-hour session complete with video where all the scouts sort of brief everybody on 
the players that we're going to be seeing all weekend who you should be watching for. And they'll inevitably comment on some of the guys, you talk, the Brigdack style guys you talk about who aren't doing much out there or don't look great or whatever. And, you know, there, there are always a bunch of caveats about that. Like, it's November. It's been a long season for some of these guys. They may just be worn down. Others are on injury rehab or out there for specific reasons like a hitter changing position or a pitcher, you know, changing their pitch mix or something like that. So they always caution, you know, there, there might be reasons for why the guy looks the way he looks and it doesn't necessarily tarnish his prospect rating. But you're right. When you say, sometimes you see things that just, you know, caveats aside, just get kind of seared into your brain. Like, Oh, I hate everything about watching this guy. You know, I'm not, like you say, you can just draw decide He's never going to be on my team. I'm just, I'm just not seeing it. And you know, sometimes that works out. And finally, Ray, between your market research and just talking to the people who attend First Pitch Arizona, what kind of people are they that uh, come to this symposium? You know, it's interesting. They're, one of the things about the numbers being so up, so up this year and uh, us being way ahead of schedule with uh, registration is, as you can easily conclude from that, you know, we've got a lot of uh, new blood already registered, which I'm super excited about, super excited about. Uh, you know, getting to talk to some new people, meet some new faces. I, lo- I love seeing our, you know, what's really become our community of old friends out there. But, uh, you know, it, some, uh, you know, fr- freshening it up is good too. So, uh, I'm not quite sure what we're doing right on the marketing side of it. We'll, I'm sure we'll talk more about that with the people who attend when we get out there. But, uh, for now, I'm content to just sort of ride the wave and glad that, uh, you know, as much as you and I enjoy the weekend that, uh, the word is getting out and, uh, other people are catching on. In my experience, uh, something I've mentioned to people that I've played in leagues with and uh, people who ask me about first pitch is uh, the profile of them is there is no profile, except they all have one thing in common. They're really intense about playing fantasy baseball and wanting to be on the cutting edge. And their ages, uh, last year I met a guy who was 22. Uh, I ran into a guy who actually was from the same city that I was in uh, years ago, Regina, Saskatchewan, and he came up to me. He must have been... 75 maybe 80 years old and everything in between all walks of life all professions all all kinds of backgrounds and the one thing that everybody had in common was a very focused intensity about being good at fantasy baseball and uh, one of the things I know that uh, people have commented on in the market research that you guys do is that as interesting as it is for these people to be able to rub elbows with uh, with uh, the so-called experts and the touts and so forth is the the ability to interact with each other. Uh, We've heard about guys forming leagues. We've heard about guys, you know, becoming fast friends and and, uh, meeting each other away from First Pitch Arizona, even though one of them's from Michigan and the other guy's from, you know, Louisiana or or whatever the case might be. It's a very social environment with a very tight focus, and I think that kind of thing really appeals to not to the average run-of-the-mill, you know, I play fantasy, but I'm not that interested. Most of these uh, attendees are really interested. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the other thing about there not being a they're not being a type that I, I think underscores that is, you know, one of the things Brent and I are particularly excited about is we're starting to see some uh, some level of gender diversity come into the crowd too. And then, uh, you know, there were, there were times, you know, five, eight years ago where if there were one or two women attending, that was big news. And now I, I just scanning the registration list this year, we're going to, you know, there are, there are a lot more than that. So we're getting, uh, 
we're, we're, we're mixing things up. And like you said, the, uh, the, the one common element is that everyone, you know, is there because they, you know, can't think of a better way to spend a weekend in November than, uh, than watching ball games and talking baseball all weekend. So if you come with that as a commonality, you kind of nothing else matters. Ray, let's wrap up this segment with the key information. When is First Pitch Arizona? Where is First Pitch Arizona? And where can people get more info and sign up? Yes. Uh, so uh, First Pitch Arizona is November 1st through 4th at the Courtyard Scottsdale Salt River. Uh, if you go to BaseballHQ.com, there is a bright orange and yellow logo on the right side of the homepage with our, uh, that is our link to First Pitch Arizona. You can go there. Click on that link. You can see the program as we've got it sketched out right now, still under development. You can see the speaker list. You can register right there from behind that logo. So uh, the our next price deadline is this coming Wednesday, August fifteenth. If you get if you get yourself registered by August fifteenth, the price is two ninety nine for the weekend, which uh, is a forty percent discount over the full price so we're sort of still in the early bird registration period although like i said earlier uh we might <laughs> early bird might be all we have this year because we're on pace to sell things out so uh you know that deadline's coming up in a couple of, c- couple of days and you if you're uh sitting on the fence uh you know go book yourself a flight and go book that uh registration there's still some room at the hotel as well so uh there, there's still time to jump in you're not uh not behind the game at all as long as you do it quickly and i'll throw in a, a special offer if you if you Go up to Ray during First Pitch Arizona. Say you heard about it on Baseball HQ Radio. He'll buy you a beer. I'll buy you a beer too, PD. How's that? All right. Sounds good. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Ray Murphy from BaseballHQ.com. And Ray, during the season, I like to ask our experts to talk about players you think will be boons and banes for the rest of the fantasy season. We're coming down the stretch now, so it's important to identify those guys who might be able to move you in the categories. Uh, Ray, let's start with some boons. These are guys you think should interest our listeners. Let's start in the American League with a hitter who could be a boon. I don't know if you, you didn't get to see him when you were watching the Jays this week with, with the Red Sox because he's on the DL now, but uh, I was really liking what I was seeing from Blake Swihart in Boston over the last couple of weeks. He had gotten some work behind the plate. He was mixing in time at first base. I think he even played uh, played third one night, and you know his bat was really coming around. And you know, he, he's not playing every day, but with the Red Sox having the bit, a big lead, I think he'll get a lot of at bats in September when he comes back, and he's catcher eligible, so that's a thing I like for. Uh, a nice way to sneak in some extra productivity down the stretch. That's one guy who I will uh, be watching for in some of my leagues. In the National League, who's a hitter who could be a boon? I think we mentioned Fran Bill Reyes earlier. Uh, you know, he's done nothing but hit at every level this year, and uh, the Padres might be finally catching on and going to let him hit for the rest of the year in the big leagues, which would be uh, good for anybody who needs a power boost. And let's face it, that's probably all of us. Over to the mound, uh, who's an American League pitcher who's going to be a boon for his owners? Uh, you know, I, I'm super excited. It's just two, two short starts, but uh, what Tyler Glasnow has done in Tampa since the trade with, for Archer has been pretty interesting. And maybe the, uh, you know, I, I've even read some speculation on Twitter that maybe even before they acquired him, the, Ra- the Rays had a good idea of what needed to be tweaked with Glasnow and sort of gave him the answer key once he showed up. So, um, I'm, you know, I'm not drawing firm conclusions on an eight-inning sample size, but I'm, I'm pretty interested to see what his next few starts look like. I am too, and I, I was wondering if the, the drawback to that might be whether they were going to use him in that opener role. But uh, it looks like, if anything, if they're trying to keep him down to four or five innings, that maybe he'll be the second guy. They'll open with the pre-lever, as uh, Jason Collette calls him, and then maybe put Glasnow in, in a position to get some wins by pitching innings you know, three through seven or something like that. Uh, who's a National League pitcher who could be a boon for you? 
You know, it's been kind of sneaky good has been um, Robbie Irwin has been, um, you know, kind of in a swing role in San Diego, and he's got some ridiculous walk strikeout numbers. This is a guy who was a former top prospect years and years and years ago, but he might just be that he's the, you know, those classical late-blooming lefty, and I, the Padres are fooling around with him in, you know, at least some spot-starting roles. So uh, I don't I don't quite – I haven't quite figured out what role he's going to have for the rest of the year, but his uh, – wherever he's pitched, he's been quite good so far. So I'm uh, – I'll be keeping an eye on him. Ray Murphy's Boons, Blake Swihart of Boston, Fernando Reyes of San Diego, Tyler Glasnow of Tampa, Robbie Erlin also of San Diego. Ray, let's move over to your Baines. These are guys about whom you think listeners should be cautious. Uh, Again, we'll start in the American League. Who's a hitter who could be a Bane for his owners? You know, I think he's about to come off the DL this week, but I'm worried as an owner of him about Jose Altuve. (coughs) Um, It's only because the leg injury seems like it was a little bit bigger deal than fully than first reported. I think it's the kind of thing that could impact both his power or speed down the stretch. And let's face it, the Astros are going to be primarily concerned with getting to, getting him healthy for October rather than getting him cranking up, cranking it up for every day and the rest of August and September. So I, I could see a lot of, uh, a lot of days off for him too. So it's got me worried. And they have uh, Marwin Gonzalez as well to fill in, uh, especially if Korea comes back anytime soon. Uh, National League hitter, who's the Bane? I'm having trouble believing what Ben Zobrist is doing. I, you know, the Cubs, you know, are probably going to continue to pull away in the National League Central. And, you know, they've still got their team pretzel thing where they can, you know, put a lot of guys in a lot of different places. And Zobrist has hit enough to, you know, justify a, a regular role there. But, you know, I, I don't know that that's going to continue. I, you know, he's got a batting average over 300, but it's fairly empty. I don't, I don't know that I, you know, even though he's making a lot of contact, I don't believe that he's actually that kind of hitter. Over to the mound again, back to the American League. Who's a pitcher who could be a Bane? Oh, let's see. Um, I think every time I've been on the show, I've talked about Ronaldo Lopez, um, so I should stop doing that. Um, I was a little interested in – let's go somewhere else. Um, I was a little interested in James Shields uh, a couple weeks ago, thinking the White Sox would trade him to somewhere decent um, where you know he's been better this year and a you know, team context might have uh, made him interesting in mixed leagues, but he didn't get traded. Um, so now even though he's – Still been decent. I'm I'm shying away there. That's probably not breaking news. But um, you know, if you were tempted by the fact that James Shields isn't a you know complete dumpster fire anymore, I, I'm I'm still staying pretty clear. Yeah, I'm staying pretty clear too. Uh, finally, a National League pitcher who's a bane for you. Uh, I'm going to go back to the Cubs again. Uh, John Lester's got me worried for all sorts of reasons. He had a couple of bumpy outings, and he's uh, his ERA is still on the surface pretty decent, but the underlying indicators are pretty universally bad i know he got he got racked in one outing a couple of weeks ago and i I would worry that there's you know still more correction to be had there you know i bet in this whole season the one name that's come up as a national league bane pitcher more than anybody else has been john lester it's like right from right from week one it's like don't get john lester watch out for john lester and he's actually been pretty good yeah yeah, from a fantasy point of view but it's like he's been good despite everything that uh, all the signs are pointing that he shouldn't be as good as he's been Maybe he's listening. John Lester, if you're listening, I apologize, but uh, (laughs) sorry, not interested. Uh, Thanks very much. Ray, it's been a terrific uh, session. Tell us where listeners can read more. Stay in touch with Ray Murphy. Uh, You can find me in the general manager's office at Baseball HQ. You can always find me on the HQ forums and um, Twitter at RayHQ. Very good. Ray Murphy, thanks very much for helping us out. It's been terrific as always, and uh, hopefully we'll talk to you sometime later on this year. Yeah, pencil me in for your live show from First Pitch Arizona, Patrick. Will do. Thanks, Ray. Take care. 
Ray Murphy is co-general manager and a columnist at BaseballHQ.com. When we come back, our weekly talk with Todd Zola and Master Notes coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. We just heard from Ray Murphy about First Pitch Arizona, but here's a detailed list of what you're going to get for your registration investment. You'll get three or more days filled with more than two dozen seminar sessions and breakout sessions. You'll get tickets to four Arizona Fall League games, including the Fall Stars All-Star Game if it falls on the event weekend. There'll be a free official Arizona Fall League program. You'll get copies of Ron Chandler's Baseball Forecaster for 2018 and Rob Gordon and Jeremy Deloney's 2018 Minor League Baseball Analyst. There's a free welcome reception on Thursday evening. If you can get in a little bit early, you'll want to attend that. It's at a ballpark. There's a free Saturday lunch event at the hotel. There are free hot buffet breakfasts for hotel guests. And we've got other handouts, instant freebies, prizes, and of course all the fun of hanging around at First Pitch Arizona. Check it out at BaseballHQ.com. Look on the right-hand side under the Baseball HQ radio logo. There's a bright orange and yellow logo for First Pitch Arizona. You do want to be there. Welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for Talk with Todd. And I'm happy to once again say to Todd Zola, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Good to be back with you, PD. In the Z-Files recently, you had a column called Prepping for the Stretch Run, a great appropriate topic for this time of year. And you took a really interesting approach to making roster decisions for the last part of the season. You looked at previous 40-game runs to set realistic expectations for how much production a player can generate. I know that this was really helpful for me because, you know, you tend to get these road colored glasses that if only this guy could hit you know 22 home runs down the stretch or you know somehow or other you can get 60 rbis and this is really a terrific reality check where'd you get the idea basically i mean kind of the same way you know the same thinking that you're they're implying when they when reviewing the teams i just started them you know say to myself well i need this to happen i need that to happen and i kind of asked can this even happen and it kind of actually it even goes back a little little further in just my in general how I think in that the uh, the greatest advice that uh, that Jason Gray the original uh, founder of Masters Ball and now now Tampa Bay Rays scout but when we were sitting I think it was a parking lot of a Schlotzky's in Arizona uh, before an AFL game we were just talking about what we want to do for the site that year and I, you know what do you want me to write about and he just looked at me and says I want you to write about what I always want you to write about what you've always written about ask yourself what you want to read and if it's not there, write it. It's like, wow, that's so simple and yet so deep. And that's kind of what I've been doing for the, you know, for the past 20 years is is trying to find stuff that I'm interested in, but when I go to look it up, I can't find it. So I said, you know, geez, I wonder if anybody's ever looked at this and couldn't find it. So basically, I just put the uh, broke the season in the quarters and and looked to see what the the top 30 at each position and not each position and for each stat category what they've done and like you're saying just as a guideline I, I don't know how i mean depending on how one thinks it's it's actionable in different ways but i just when you when you try to figure out what you need to me it makes sense to know what you can get and not that every player you're going to get is in the top 30 but if you just do use logical unbiased expectations and then okay well that's that but i do need some help how much help can i get to me, it's just, just it's just one added information piece of information that you may have that your opponent doesn't when they're doing the same exercise. I thought that part of it was really interesting in that the the top thirty guys because 
we when we're in trade mode and we're trying to improve our rosters for the stretch, we look at the top players. We say, I need home runs. Geez, I should look at Manny Machado or I should look at, you know, uh, Bryce Harper or Chris Davis or one of these type of guys, Joey Gallo. And we say, like I said before, I'm hoping that this guy can deliver me X number of home runs. But in a lot of instances, that expectation is just not realistic. Uh, you you focused this part of your column on the offensive category, so let's start with home runs. What did you find was a typical top player kind of achievement for a forty a forty game run like we're looking at for this stretch? Yeah, the top the top was in the in the low teens, thirteen or fourteen, something in that range. Uh, I think uh, I think Matt Carpenter in his just white hot streak t- tipped eighteen. And I think Jesus Aguiar uh, topped that amount as well. But I think you know, they said the most ones can expect is 13 to 14, which prorates to 52 or 56. And last year, there were players that were hitting that amount for the season. So you'd expect that as their normal production. This year, we're not there. The, the, the home runs are down enough that I don't think anybody's going to hit 50 this season between injuries and the whatnot. So it, 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 it you know kind of passes a sniff test in that regard, too, that you think that the high end would, would, would exceed what the best player is going to get for the season. So, um, you know, does, you know, does it mean that a guy can emerge and hit 16 homers, 17 homers? We're like... Uh, we're at the almost at the true quarter pole next week. You know, for the last fourth of the season, yes, yeah, somebody could. But if you're counting on so and so emerging hitting 18 homers, you may yeah you, know, you may want to think about trying to get more homers elsewhere. Or if, like I was doing, when the, sort of what emanate this emanated from was a keeper league. I was trying to decide if I need to uh, sell because the trade deadline's coming up, or if I could work myself into a uh, into a paying spot. Um, you know, if, if I need that kind of production from a couple players, maybe it's time for me to start building my team for next year. I thought it was really instructive. Uh, you mentioned the Matt Carpenter having 18 home runs. That was the biggest total. And for the most part, it was like 11, 12. I'd say the median was probably more like 9 or 10. And these are the top home run hitters. If you acquire somebody who's not generally recognized as a home run hitter, probably that number is going to be a little bit lower. So you have to, you have to temper your expectations. And I think uh, a lot of times, as I said earlier, we get these high flying hopes rather than expectations or rational thinking. And it really colors how we do our, uh, how we do our rostering. Uh, what did you find out as far as the numbers for RBIs and runs? Yeah, um, actually, you know, I, I, sometimes when I when I speak with you about these pieces, I, I kick myself because I think of things I should have written on. But going back to homers for a minute, because you kind of alluded to it, the uh, the bottom end of the spectrum, you know, the, we're talking the thirtieth best thirtieth player, which is still pretty darn high. The thirtieth best player is getting eight or nine, which to me doesn't seem like a ton. Especially because we're not talking a month, we're talking a month and a half. So you know that that prorates to 32 or 36. So that's really where you, to me, not really where you need to temper expectations is that if the 30th best player in the league, and there's 30 teams in the league, so you can think about it that way. If the top home run hitter from the you know from the lower the the, the 30th team, I say only gets eight because that's still a good number. Then you know what what do you, what can you reasonably expect from everybody else on your team? So I, that that's interesting. But um, to go on to the RBIs, uh, the RBIs was uh, probably it was it was in the probably it was in the high high thirties, maybe low forties. So uh, I'm you know I look I, I just set it at forty. Um, 
is, is sort of my the number. I think it was 38 one month and 42 the next. So I just set it at 40 RBI. And again, if you do the sniff test and you multiply 4, you come up with 160. That's more than the 120 that a guy like J.D. Martinez is pacing to. So it kind of passes the sniff test, and it does show you that, uh, you know, the, 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 the top end each month, as expected, are, you know, are, are going to obviously exceed, you know, seasonal expectations for the best RBI guys. Run scored seem to be about the same in the high 30s, low 40s when you're at the very top of the run. In the middle for RBIs and uh, and runs, it looked like um, maybe 25 or so, something like that. And again, these are the best 30 guys in uh, in the category yeah. for the period, and most players are not like that. Having said that, though, when we're making trade targets, we are going to look at, I need home runs, therefore I am going to look at J.D. Martinez or Nolan Arenado or guys like this, and I'm I'm not going to be interested in trading for some down-the-roster down guy because it doesn't help me nearly enough, but the expectations that you have to temper remain the same. Uh, the other one that I thought was interesting, and it didn't render properly on my browser, but uh, what about stolen bases? Um, stolen bases uh, were... In the in the high, there's somebody each month kind of just was a was a big big jackrabbit and and got you know close to 20, but more often than not it was in the high teens. It was actually a little bit higher than homers, uh, but then it falls off very quickly as one would expect because of the the nature. There's just a few uh, just a handful of people at the position that that can tr- contribute. So the stolen bases uh, 16 or 17 at the high end, but even so it's 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 around 13, 12, 11. That, that that you can expect for most, and then get the the lower end fall. You know, the lower end was five or six. So that that that's just as telling um, in in retrospect that if you're trying to figure out that not even saying, well, I need the my guy to be the best. I just need to do a little bit better than normal. Uh, you know, five or six, which is twenty five or thirty. And I don't know that we're going to have all that many steals guys in the, let alone getting 50, that are going to be in the 30s and 40s this year. It's just, it's a, it's a, it's a, steals are dropping. And not only that, they're dropping the, the high end are not swiping as many bases as normal. I think this could be the first season since 2012. There hasn't been a guy stealing 50, and that was 49 by Mike Trout. Uh, and every year, and since 2000, someone has stolen 50 bases, and I don't think we're going to get going to get that this year. And finally, what about batting averages? Uh, again, uh, the there's a range, and and uh, we we're looking only at the top 30. But what did you find for that? Yeah, I don't know who it's going to be. Uh, I can't I can't tell you the player. I wish I could, but someone's going to hit 360. Uh, for the for the final fourth of the season, someone's going to 360, 365. Don't know who it is. Uh, of all the categories, this is the one that there's more surprises, and that just sort of makes sense, just because there's more, you know, what we like, you know, luck involved, hit rate involved um, with, with with the batting average. I mean, I'm looking now, I'm seeing from in the middle from May 15th to June 18th, I'm seeing Ben Gamel and Derek Dietrich, and uh, you know, names of names of that ilk: uh, Brian Anderson, Adam Jones, Yuli Gurriel, Tony Kemp. So that's the this is the category where you're going to get the most surprise help or unexpected help. But um, someone's out there is going to be hitting in the 360 range. And like I said, do not do not know who, unfortunately. The um, the low end is 310, 311, 312, which, um, you know, it's going to help, especially if the player 
is someone that normally hits 250 and they're going 70 points above their average or whatever. But um, and I I still contend still contend that you can still make up points in the category too. That it, you shouldn't one shouldn't just ignore it. It's sort of hard to trade for batting average because it is so variable. So even if you're trading for a guy that uh, you expect to hit for a good batting average in, 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 in a 40-game stretch, you know, dumb luck. It could be 10, 15, 20 points below what you're expecting, and the skills might not have changed. So it's it's, But still, sometimes you just have to do what you have to do. If you need the points in batting average, you got it's just a higher risk, uh, less of, you know, less of a probability that it works out. But you still have, you know, if you're not going to win anyway, you got to do what you got to do. Yeah, I noticed that too, and I was looking through the lists. Uh, I, I saw in the home run category, you see the same five or six names, not always right at the top, but you see the same maybe 10 guys who are always somewhere in the mix in the in the home runs. Ditto for mm-hmm. the RBIs and, and for the runs scored, especially in stolen bases. It's the Malik Smiths and guys like that who are – always in the in the running for the or in the conversation but when you get to batting average man there's a lot of variability in that uh, in that last category and that certainly should cause uh cause a, a fantasy owner to take some time to think about what he's uh, intending to do but later on in uh, in master notes I'll be talking about the fact that you can make a move in batting average just like the other mm-hmm. decimals and uh, like you said you may not know who it's going to be but you know if you can get mookie bets your chances are better than if you get a lot of other guys right and you probably you know you're going to need some internal help you're going to need uh, you know Matt Duffy to, to go on a heater you know you're going to need someone like that and it's you know it, when, when I actually try to make the moves if I need help in more than one spot what I'll probably do and I have limited assets I'll, I'll put my assets towards homers or steals and I'll just hope that I don't want to say batting average piggybacks but I just hope that I'm the one that just gets fortunate for the last six or eight weeks and it just happens organically that's if I need help and, you know, maybe I need help. You know, if I need help and if I don't have the assets to address everything, batting average is the one that I'll fade is, is I guess, the best way to say it. In the second part of the column, Todd, you looked at monthly splits over the last few years across all 10 categories, hitting and pitching both. What was the thinking in that analysis? Yeah, as, as, I, was, as I was doing it, and I, I think I've thought this, just because so much of my work is streaming pitching, I've, I've kind of thought about this for years. Well, I've looked at it for years and, and thought about it. You know, it's so basically what I was thinking about is, um, you know, we're we're looking at the last quarter of the season. It's it, it it's a, it's mostly the the dog days of August with the heat, and then September when rosters expand. Just sort of wondering if there's any difference in the stat accumulation over the by by month. Can we see something? You know, can we say because September call-ups, ex- uh, because there's September call-ups, are there more runs? Are there fewer runs? Do steals drop? Does something happen in September that that would make it easier or harder to gain or lose stats in a category? So I, that's what I did for the past three years. Looked at uh, each, each individual month. I know you know they're arbitrary splits in that they're just month, but that's what you know the data is in that the data is in that that's how it's split and it's consistent. So uh, what I basically did was take a look at uh, runs, steals, and homers for uh, hitting, and then looked at uh, ERA, WHIP, 
and strikeouts, and I'm looking at my the column now, and the uh, I need to talk to my editor. My headings are all screwed up, but I uh, need to need to fix that up. But it's basically um, home runs, RBIs, runs, steals, and ERA, WHIP, and strikeouts, and the conclusion basically the the most actionable uh, result that I found was there's more runs. Uh, there's there's more runs scored in August, and you can attribute it to the heat, in that the it is it's one of the warmer months. It's the, the 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 ERA for August is above average, whereas the ERA for September and October, you know, one may think it might be below average or you know, above average. You can put it whatever narrative you want because of the expanded rosters, but it's pretty it basically is is the the league average. So if I'm looking to stream pitching. And I have, say, I have an innings cap, uh, innings limit, and/or um, limited amount of fab to spend on these good streamers. I want to be a little patient, and I'm going to wait till September because run scoring is down in September. If if the overall run scoring is down in September, I will get, in theory, on paper anyway, if I make the right pick, I'll get I'll get a better performance from my pitcher. So I'm not rushing out now in August to stream some of these guys unless I really, really like the matchup because if I'm patient and diligent, I'll find better matchups in September. Well, it was an excellent column, uh, Todd. I really enjoyed uh, the idea of it, and I enjoyed the execution of it as well. It's at Rotowire this week, uh, rotowire.com. What do you got coming up in the future? Are you going to look at pitching as far as these uh, uh, earlier averages we were talking about? I think so. I mean, you mentioned in your master notes you're going to be talking about uh, that you can still make up points in, in ratios, especially batting average. I'm gonna I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do a focus on pitching, but it's going to be a little bit more than just the targets because the 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 the, the top end is one thing. The way you make up the points in pitching and kind of just alluded to it is so much streaming and spot starting. And it doesn't even have to be two starts. It's just picking favorable matchups that there's more to it than just bullying things up like you do in the hitting. So the, the column's going to be more about how I go about managing pitching past the quarter pole, which will include these uh, top-end numbers just to, have a, just to have a foundation, but it'll be a little bit more in-depth uh, as far as uh, what I'm looking for for streaming and, 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 and how many innings is necessary, how many bad, how many times can you be wrong, how many disasters can you absorb and still be on target to do what you need to do. So uh, it's going to be a little bit more in-depth in actual, in actual doing. I, I thought about I thought about talking about my method in the for this one, for the hitting. Um, it, it is a little bit Excel involved, and I didn't want to get lost in the shuffle. I basically... Depending on the website, I'm able to dump the the current rosters from ex, from the website into Excel, and then use your old favorite VLOOKUP, and you can you can get their their own stats to date, and then you can just prorate to the end of the season to sort of see where if every player continued to do what they're doing, where they would end up, and and uh, you know and then add it on to what you have now, um, and trying to you know try to get an expected standings towards the end of the season. Um, it's you know it's hard enough to explain over the you know verbally whether you can do it orally or not. I just thought I'd get lost in the shuffle. Not everybody can has the same Excel skills or even the same desire to do it. So I kind of left it out. But that's kind of what what I do is I I dump my my current rosters into 
excel and, and figure out how much what the play will get for the rest of the season, add it on to what they have now, and kind of project standings and, and go from there. And that's where I they know, geez, this is what I need. Can I actually get it? But um, I will. The, the 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 pitching is a little different, just because you're managing it's ratios and you're managing spot starters. You can't just make that same assumption that they that the pro rate you can't even really make in hitting because there's going to be changes to your lineups with injuries and reserves. So it's not even perfect, but it's less perfect for pitching than it is for hitting. Well, uh, I'm scooping myself here a bit on master notes, but uh, I, I wrapped up that particular commentary by saying you can't look at where you are now. You have to have some way of figuring out where you're going to be at the end and make your adjustments and assessments accordingly. And uh, I know a lot of the websites now that are running commissioner services have a tool that allows you to project to the end what the standings and the categories will look like. I know on roto.com has that, and I've been told that other other uh Commissioner sites have similar kinds of tools. The caveat there being that you don't know where the projections are coming from. Often, uh, on Roto uses Baseball HQ and Davenport, but the other ones sometimes it's some internal one you're not quite sure of, and it it helps if you're able to do it manually because you can tweak it. But like you said, it's a lot of work. Uh, I used to do it all the time, but that was before I was married. <laughs> I had all the time in the world to look at it. Uh, Todd, thanks very much for helping us out again this week. It was fascinating, terrific column at RotoWire, and we'll talk to you again next week. Keep up the good work. And by the time people read it, I will have the column headings corrected. Even better. Thanks, Todd. <laughs> Thank you. Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire, and appears here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I want to talk about working the decimals down the stretch. For a long time, Todd Zola, who's a very smart guy, has been telling anyone who'll listen that it's never too late to work the decimals. That is, you can keep making moves to improve the ratio categories of batting average, ERA, and whip. The same is true for leagues that wisely use on-base percentage instead of batting average. Fantasy owners often think that late in the season, like now, we can't move the decimals because with 67% of our at-bats and innings already in the books, the ratios denominators are getting too big to move the ratios. But Todd says that while you can't move as much as you could earlier in the year, you can still move enough to gain some points in the ratio categories. Now, as I said, I think Todd Zola is one of the smartest fantasy analysts in the game, and I trust everything he says about the game, because he thinks about it a lot, and he applies a background in the physical sciences, which makes me respect his methods and his ideas all the more. That said, neither Todd nor I, nor any analyst worth reading, expects the whole world to simply believe what they say because they say it. Any theory has to withstand testing. So while I believe Todd, I'm going with the old Cold War credo, trust but verify. So I set up a little spreadsheet with some imaginary team stats. I got them by averaging the teams in a 15-team mixed experts league. Then I set up a table to see how much an owner can gain in the ratio categories, first just by dropping a poor performer in the category. Even if we can't replace a poor performer, we can drop him anytime we like. Second, I checked how much a team would improve by not just dropping the poor performer, but also by replacing him with a good performer. In my own Tout American League, I've picked up about .009 in on-base percentage over the last month or so, partly by dropping low on-base killers, and partly by adding higher on-base helpers. 
For one example, I reserved a very low on-base corner infielder, moved the relatively decent on-base catcher Russell Martin to corner, he's eligible at third, and then I fabbed a minor league catcher with no projected plate appearances to fill my vacant catcher spot. That catcher, by the way, is Danny Jansen of Toronto, and he has a 12% walk rate and a 387 on-base percentage in AAA. Stash him if you can, and he might get called up. So let's see how much we can move in the categories with Major League teams having around 50 games to go. The basic setup for the batting average test was this. A team projected to finish the season with a 250 batting average in 7,660 at-bats. The at-bat figure is prorated from all the average in that Experts League I mentioned. I first checked for the effect of just dropping a hitter with 190 projected at-bats at various low batting averages and not replacing him. Here's the results. Dropping a 245 hitter just below the 250 average raised the team's ending batting average to 25007, a small gain. Dropping a 235 hitter raised team ending batting average to 25034. Dropping a 225 hitter raised the team's ending batting average to 25060. And dropping a 215 hitter, and yes, they exist, raised the team's ending batting average to 25087. Even that last is not a real huge gain, but I've played in batting average leagues with narrower margins than these in the batting average category. And if you're wondering how much gain a team would get from dropping, say, a hitter with a 200 projected batting average, the team's ending batting average would project to be 25127, 127 extra points. So if you still have Chris Davis on your club, you should think about it. Now, as I said, the gains are amplified when the poor projected batting average hitter is replaced with a high projected batting average hitter. I put all the gains into table form. It's too much to read here on the podcast, but you can see the whole table, if you'd like, by going to BaseballHQ.com and finding this Masternotes. But here are the highlights. If you could somehow drop a 215 hitter and add a 305 hitter, you would jump more than two full points in projected batting average. That's the upper left of the table, and it would be a solid gain in the category in most leagues. Down in the lower right corner of the table, where the least gain is registered, dropping a 245 hitter and adding a 265 hitter still almost gains you half a projected batting average point to 25046. That's less likely to jump you significantly in the category, but it ain't nothing. On to ERA. Gains in the pitching decimals can be greater because the ratio denominator is a lot smaller than batting average, around 1,200 innings instead of 7,500 at-bats. This part of the study used a team with a 420 projected ERA in 1,325 innings. Let's start again just by dropping a poor performer. Dropping a 425 pitcher, barely worse than your team, still raises your team ERA to 4202. Dropping a 450 pitcher to 4188. Dropping a 475 pitcher, 4181. Dropping a 5.00 ERA pitcher, 4.167. Dropping a 525 pitcher, 4160. And dropping a 550 projected ERA pitcher, the team ERA finishes at 4146. That's an ERA improvement of .054. And again, that's pretty significant. And now, not only dropping a pitcher, but adding a low projected ERA replacement. In the upper left corner of the table, dropping a 550 disaster for a 275 stud would mean an ERA improvement of more than 11 points. That's enough to move 2 to 4 points in the Model Experts League in the ERA category. 
and enough to move a lot in leagues where the category is tighter. Passing down the table to the lower right, we see a modest improvement of about .014, but it's still a potentially useful gain. Three of the 15 experts teams in our model league gained an ERA point even with this small improvement. Finally, we repeat the process for WHIP, with a baseline of a 125 WHIP in those same 1,325 projected innings. Again, let's just start by dropping a bad performer. Dropping a 130 pitcher improves WHIP to 1248, dropping a 135 pitcher to 1246, a 140 pitcher to 1244, dropping a 145 guy drops the WHIP to 1242, and dropping a terrible 150 projected WHIP pitcher Team WHIP finishes at 12.39, a gain of .011. These are not earth-shattering outcomes, although picking up .011 could help move in the category. But again, the real impacts come when the drop of the bad pitcher is paired with the add of a good pitcher. Similar to the ERA story, we see a relatively gigantic move in the upper left, where the awful 150 guy is subbed by a decent 1.00 guy, creating a WHIP gain of .021. In the Experts League, most teams gained at least one point and a couple gained three points on an 0-2-1 improvement. Down in the lower right, the improvement was very modest, 0.004, but even at that, two teams in that model league would have enjoyed a one-point gain in the category. The main point in all of this is that Todd Zola is right. We can move, and often significantly, in the decimals. Of course, this approach requires some careful assessment of the categories. Dropping a low batting average hitter who is providing home runs, think of Joey Gallo or Kyle Schwarber, could cost your team as much in swats as it gains in batting average. Similarly, dropping a high ERA or high whip starter could cost your team in wins and strikeouts. Often, the teams pursuing these strategies are locked in the counting stat categories, so they have little to lose. But there are opportunities to trade from strength or weakness to gain in the decimals. As I've documented in past Master Notes, my power stats in my league this year are locked into the cellar. So I recently swapped my last two power sources, on-base liabilities Avisail Garcia, a 311 projected on-base percentage, and Adam Jones, projected at 295. I got back Brett Gardner at 342, and Malik Smith, his projection is 326, but he's at 371 year to date. That trade gained me about .018 in on-base percentage, moving me from 309-ish to 311-ish, and that puts me in range of picking up points in the on-base category. Meantime, I was also able to get a potential gain in stolen bases, a category in which I also have some possibilities. There's one other advantage in the decimals that Todd Zola always mentions, and I'll echo it here. It's possible that while you're moving forward, your opponents will help you out by moving backwards in those same categories, and it's only the decimals where your opponents can move backwards towards you. So one of the first steps to take is to calculate the finishing positions of all the teams in your league so you can set your target where you, your immediate category opponents, and your league overall are going to be at the end, not where you are right now. Then get busy and move those decimals. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox in the weekly free Baseball HQ e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. You can also read Master Notes for free at the Baseball HQ website. And of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. 
And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 10th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 30 of the 2018 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday full edition, Ray Murphy, co-general manager of BaseballHQ.com, a columnist at the site. He's an excellent fantasy analyst, a fearsome competitor in all the leagues he plays in, and he has been a very supportive friend of the Baseball HQ Radio podcast. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. And our pitcher matchups were presented by Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. Thanks as well to Todd Zola, our regular weekly guest on Talk with Todd. I'm Patrick Davitt, your Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow me on my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. And take a second to go to iTunes, Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Player.fm, Pretty much wherever you get your pod, if they allow you to do reviews and leave ratings, please leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and that helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday when our guest will be Justin Mason from Fangraphs and Rotographs and a couple of very fine fantasy baseball podcasts. That's Justin Mason next Friday on the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. And so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.